Hi, and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm your guest host, Simon Nainby, and I'm here to have some in-depth conversations with some interesting people around uh, rugby and around coaching in general. I'm interested in in stories and uh, having a, a good in-depth conversation, so it's probably going to go over quite a period of time. We're going to do the podcast in two parts. The first part will be sort of like off your commute, have some quick takeaways, um, some real bullet point uh, aspects of, of coaching. And then we're going to go into a much deeper conversation and we're just going to see where it goes. So I'm well, I'm pleased to welcome tonight my guest, Paul Hodgson. Paul, how are you? Very well, Simon. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem at all. No problem at all. So we've had some really fantastic conversations over the years and um, I just thought, it'd be really good to have one of those conversations and record it and let people listen in, basically. Superb. So if you just want to give us a little bit about your background and, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, no problem. So, um, yeah, played rugby um, from the age of probably five um, at a junior club, like many people do. Um, that was Sutton Epsom. Uh, my family were heavily involved in that in that, in that that club. Uh, interestingly, my, my dad taught or coached my brother from six to 18, and when my brother turned 18, I was turning six. So my dad had to start all the game <laughs> and uh, took me through. Um, I think he got to a point where he realised that maybe there was other coaches needed. Um, however, um, yeah, the, the long and short of this point, when I was 18 years old, I managed to get into the uh, England under 18 club team. There was an England under 18 schools team. And for whatever reason, for a period of about three to five years, they decided to have an England under 18 clubs team I think they just felt maybe rightly that the England under 18s team was often picked from private independent schools and the, the fact that there was a club uh, route via divisional county Surrey for me London southeast and then um, and then the England under 18s was every new everyone needs a bit of luck right Simon and that was my bit of luck uh, that there was this under 18 club team Anyway, we met up at Castlecroft, England under 18 clubs versus England under 18 schools. The England under 18 schools team was better, uh, but it was a close enough match. Anyhow, uh, the year after, um, there was an England under 19s team. You know, I was the starting scrum off the England under 18 clubs team. Well, I didn't even get a look in. And I was like, what's going on here? And what I had done is I'd stayed at Sutton Epsom thinking, and I'd, I tried to seek some advice from some people saying, have I got a chance of making it if I stay at this club team? And they were like, yeah, 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 you'd be fine. Men's team, men's rugby, this is what you need. Well, you know, I, I knew that I had to be in the mix of the under-19 team. So I quickly shot off to a couple of academies around where I lived and Harlequins being first, but I rocked up there on a Tuesday, Thursday night and there was like 100 kids my age. Um, but then somebody uh, had recommended me to Wasps and I went to Wasps, played a few games there and there's a cool story, maybe I'll tell it later, about how this happened. But... Um, I got, I got, uh, I played what? Uh, sorry, Was played Bristol, and um, I, long story short, uh, got an agent involved, and Bristol wanted to sign me, and at that point, um, I had the choice of staying at Wasps and going to Brunel University, or going to Bristol, and going to it was the West of England University, and that's what I decided to do: get away from home for a bit, three years, and uh, one of my role models or one of my somebody I looked up to or somebody I wanted to aspire to be, Augustine Peashot had just signed a three-year deal there. So I thought, ah, oh, this could be gold. Uh, go and learn off him. 
was there for three years. Um, again, some interesting times there. But the third year, second year, the team got relegated. I was still only 2021, 20, and uh, I had to make a decision again with my agent. Do I go to other clubs as a third, fourth, fifth choice scrum half, or do I stay in the championship? Again, another good crossroads for me. I decided to stay. Actually, I think what happened, this is exactly what happened. Augustine Peshot phoned me up, and uh, I was young, impressionable, and he was like, Paul, I reckon stay, you know, stay at Bristol, get you'll be in the championship, you'll play lots of games, and uh. And you're, you, you know, you're getting back into the into the Premiership, and it just. I looked back at that conversation that I had with him on the phone, and I think it was actually probably a little bit of guilt from him having taken millions of pounds in wages over the years, <laughs> and he had said to the owner or, or the people that run the club, "I know what I'll do. I'll help you keep the squad because everyone just left." So I did say, but again, the best thing I could have done: played 33 games in that year and halfway through the year, signed for London Irish. Brilliant. Back home, back to Surrey. Ten years. Eight to ten years at London Irish, uh, signed for three years at Worcester. That was, I admit, a bit of a cash cow. Uh, that was probably the, the time that I earned the most as a, uh, as a player. Um, but also the opportunity to, to move to the edge of the Cotswolds with my young family. Um, and then alongside all this, qualifications. And then I knew that I wanted to be a coach. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> and uh, uh, the opportunity came up amongst many others, about going back to London Irish as an academy coach. Did that for two years, promoted to a first-team coach for two years. And at the end of my two years as a, a senior coach, I had the opportunity, the opportunity was put in front of me to come and be a director of sport at my girls' school, uh, which is a, a, a local prep school, um, a fantastic school, which I've now been doing for 18 months. Sorry, that was a bit long. No, no, that's, that's perfect. No, that's exactly what I, I want to get into a bit of depth about everything. And I think we'll we'll go into some of those stories. Particularly want to hear that one about um, the Wasps Bristol yeah, yeah. nineteen game. But so just um, in terms of that broad range of experience, certainly playing and playing with some very big names, working under some big coaches, then going and working in the academy at Irish and then working with the first team of the Irish. What sort of things have you taken from that from that time in the pro environment that you you now look to use in your general coaching so at the school or you know in the environments you sort of find yourself in now? What what sort of things have translated well from the pro environment across to to the to the youth setup and to sort of more general yeah. coaching? Yeah, I mean I've got some perhaps I've got some um, coaching philosophy or coaching gems nuggets. Or things, my principles that I, I I try and coach by, but again, that's probably for um, later on in in this conversation. But the the, the three things again, um, probably to do my masters actually, which was um, what was that? That was to do with language communication to increase motivation. But uh, things in threes. <laughs> so it's funny that you said give me three things, and I was yeah. like, I've got. But um, one thing that, and and I know. You have to be careful when you talk like this, but work ethic, because then I think the immediate thing people think is, well, does does he think he's the only one that works hard? And I don't mean that. Um, but um, again, we, we actually everyone knows we're doing all family quizzes at the moment. Right. Yeah. And we did a bit of Mr. Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. the other night. And what's your what's your husband's most annoying habit? My wife says he works too hard. But that, you know, that's not really true. I think what happens is um, as a pro athlete and it's not just about pro athletes, I'm always careful. 
but you just do recognize what you need to do to try and make it to the top and therefore um and i did it similar when i turned to coach and that's what i felt i've i've, I've brought to this role as a director of sport at a school um working in, in, in a, a school is an amazing thing first of all you're working with young children who are uh, you, you can you can help so quickly it feels like and it's so fulfilling but if you can put loads of time and effort in, I think you see more of those rewards. So I think if anything, as a player, as a coach uh, in a professional game, I think I've held on to that work ethic and taken it to the school, which came with which came with, I think, a bit of a surprise with the current staff or, or a few things there. Um, I think the next thing is positive critique. Uh, I really am a believer of this. But on the Monday morning, after you well, first of all, you played a game in this Saturday afternoon, potentially in front of 50, 80,000 people. And tell me, I'll tell you, if, people, if you haven't had a good game, if you haven't played well, people are going to tell you about it. But on the Monday morning, which is more, even more daunting, is you're in front of 40, 50 pros, uh, management, support staff of another 10, 15, that all sit at the back. Yeah, so one of our close friends, Andre, will sit at the back just yeah. analysing. But you, you're there and, and you're out there to be, you know, you're having an exam, you're having a test, you're having a test every day, every week. And there you are on the big screen, and but it's always done. And I think young players need to quickly realise this. It's done for the best team's interest. Well, most of the time, it, it would, it would just, you would presume. So again, but positive critique, taking that to the school and just saying, look, what's the most important thing in a professional game? It's trying to win at the weekend. What's the most important thing? The child's education, right? And what's let's put the, the child first. What could we do differently, whether that's in a practice, whether that's in a hockey session, whether that's in after school training, fixtures, events, tournaments? What, 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 what can we do? So, but, but in a nice way. OK. And again, I think we'll get into that later about things that are, are, are important to me. It's about personal skills uh, and that type of thing. And finally, thing, what, again, innovation and change, because my third thing about taking it to the school was a lot of things were just done the same. Why do we do things like this? Because we did it last year. Well, why, why are you rolling out the same fixtures? Because we're in a fixture block with that school. But it was a nightmare last year. It didn't work. Let's change it. And I think whether that was doing some community events, which I think is quite easy to go through an academic term and do the same things. But actually just trying to, you know, because what I couldn't get, and look, I totally get you need it, but there's four and a half months off from the school <laughs> so I, I that's how I justify it to my family uh, and it's nice me being able to see the girls I work incredibly hard whilst I'm there but the best thing is which never ever happened in rugby the holidays did allow a switch button and I know mental health and uh, looking after yourself is quite current isn't it yeah. But I think that switch off in the holidays is like no other. And I do feel very fortunate that I get that because I know, again, a lot of other people who work you know, a 38-week year will not get that. Because you know how long it is, Simon, to switch off. You don't do that after two or three days. Sometimes it can take a week or two. Yeah, I mean, particularly when you get in the group. Uh, what, what I found working in schools was I was just sort of hitting my groove, just getting running and getting in getting into a rhythm of training and all of a sudden it's half term <laughs> then you, you have to get yourself back into the rhythm and then all of a sudden then it's christmas yeah and every time you, but the, but then now actually exactly as you say then you learn to value that and you're like okay that's we just plan for that yeah and we have that so uh, that's quite interesting because i, I think uh, we've spoken about this a little bit here and there but one of my favorite questions is, is if we weren't already doing it this way is this the way we'd start 
So is anything so is anything without being too controversial about school yeah. sport? Where is, is there anything you sort of look at from that perspective? You know, if if you could sort of rip everything up that's being done, if there were things you wanted to do, yeah, on, well, on, on think, a very superficial level, because yeah. we'll get into a bit of detail later. Well, I think actually, again, very current uh, topical conversation. And I think there's a few Zoom, Zoom meetings going around. I think I've got one tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I have. It's director of sport in the country, uh, Padis. And it's about, apparently, because I'm only 18 months into education, but you know, there's been chat for a while about um, why, why don't we do cricket in September when it's yeah. still great weather. Yeah. And another, I had the other topic was, uh, why do we go, this is the rugby season, this is the football season. Is it possible to play uh, different sports. Now, I think that's a bit unfair because during our football rugby season, there's squash matches, there's swimming galas, uh, there are uh, golf in September, there's golf fixtures, you know, there's lots of other things going on. And, you know, you, you, know, you think about uh, facilities, logistics of pitches. and But um, but at the moment, no. Um, you know, I, I, I was very blessed about coming to the school whereby um, it wasn't it wasn't broken. It was not broken. I was not going mm. in to fix it. It was such a slick, great mm. program. But that almost allowed me to even think even more. Um, but n- not necessarily. I think those things I've just mentioned they could prove um, quite interesting. You know, especially how does sport go back to um, what it was or what it's allowed to um, when we get out of this lockdown, this crazy time. Um, so that might pose some important things. But my things that I was speaking about really was um, uh, I was actually doing lots of things which involved the families, you know. Uh, so the community events. So within my first year, I took 420 people to the London Irish match um, and 200 kids did a guard of honour, you know, the biggest guard of honour they've ever done there. And it was just an important Saturday afternoon where the, we took four coach loads from the school up to up to the Majeski Stadium, uh, the, the children with the Guard of Honor got some cracking photos of it, those types of things. But then, we, but then to, to show the school that I wasn't pro rugby, of course, I've done ice hockey over at Guildford Brilliant. since. Um, and then there was going to be the hockey, the GB hockey, where they changed the stoop, the Harlequin stoop yeah. to, but of course, I think that was May going to be, but of course that was canned. So that, that's one thing that sprung to mind. Um, there was a couple of other things that I'll, I'll quickly mention. I... Um, and actually, it's a big conundrum. I know one of your good friends, uh, Sportacus. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I think he is, is is really, really sparked a great topic in what does PE and what does PE look like, PE literacy. And I hope, again, um, I don't proclaim to be an academic at all, but I, 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 I get what um, a lot of it is in terms of there's a lot of uh, games, uh, traditional games, sport played at schools. And what that's done is nicked, stolen a lot of PE. Yet we have a responsibility for activity for life. You know, we all know people post 40 that have problems with their body. But what, but I remember, okay, quickly, under 13s, we were doing a, 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 my first year at the school, doing the defence line out, and I couldn't believe that they couldn't move laterally very well. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, how's this happened? So anyway, very quickly, I think I spoke to you and ran, ran it past you, like I do a lot of things, Simon. It was a, uh, a four-minute workout, <laughs> yeah. essentially what they do at the beginning of every year, and they do that four times a week. So I brought that in. Um, do you want to yeah. just quickly just talk about what you did with that? Because I think that's really interesting what you did. Just yeah. the very top line of the type of activities you yeah. did for that four minutes. And, and of, of course, um, putting myself on a pedestal like this, and there'll be there'll be a lot of people uh, who are very 
like strength and conditioners who say, well, that's not enough. But essentially what I wanted to do is, is, is design something that a child knew off by heart that whilst, um, so, so that, and it didn't take long and it could be done a few times a week. But essentially, yeah, I came up with a 10 exercise workout that essentially starts with body weight squats. Then you hinge down, you walk your hands out, uh, a bit of dynamic stretching. There is a plank in there. Uh, there's some hopping, there's a jump, there's some jumping, there's a sprint, there's some lunges in there, some twisting, etc. Um, and I just felt that there was a responsibility whereby, yes, we had PE blocks where we would be doing movement, we'd be doing gymnastics, we'd be doing dancing. Uh, uh, but actually, throughout our football rugby season, because we do devote a lot of time to the, 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 the traditional games, that they still can do these types of movements. And I must say that I can only judge what I can see in front of me is that there was some great things. You know, there was the boys that were moving a lot better than they were prior to this. So did I do a control? No. Did I test it academically? No. But I did it in a way that I felt it was needed and I can see that I can see improvements. And, you know, is the hopping going to be responsible for uh, long term, hopefully slight 0.001% injury prevention for when they're in their 50s? I don't know. No one perhaps can prove that yet, but it, it's not going to hurt, um, including ball jumps and things like that. I think that's a really important point. And I think the other thing that you said there is that, you know, you we talked about it quite a lot when you were doing it. It, it flowed really well. You were really keen. It was a short period of time. So it was four minutes to do the whole thing that could be repeated any time, you know, at the beginning of a session, during during a session, they could have a movement break or whatever. And I think um, a lot of people are sort of scared by S&C because, as you say, you know, there's now a lot of, uh, there's a lot of PhDs in, in S&C and it can be a bit daunting oftentimes you just need to get on with it and it can have a massive impact because a lot of kids have only just really played the sport so they're a little bit more sedentary than they, they used to be years ago yeah and then, like they, they can't do press-ups or, or squats or whatever you know so it's important to give them opportunities to to, to do those sorts of things yeah and, and, and there's things that have come off it that i didn't expect on aren't, aren't they sometimes the best things so we turned up to a fixture on the saturday morning um and unfortunately one staff member was late so I, I was there. I think there was four teams playing that day. Three members of staff were currently there. So, and I was like, right, those boys have migrated to that pitch. And without me going over there, two lads had decided, right, we're doing the movement prep ourselves. And boom, they were doing that on themselves. Now, perception is an amazing thing, especially in independent schools. But I think people looked across them like, fair play. But also, it brought them together. That was a player-centred approach, albeit designed by me back in September. But this, this was February now, and it was it was great that they took ownership of that. And I had a, I had a year eight. Uh, ex, he's an exceptional rugby player. He's, he's um, moving on to his senior school, one for the future. But he asked if he could improvise it uh, for himself and what he felt he needed. I was like, 100%. This is brilliant. And then finally... What is everyone trying to do through virtual coaching, teaching at the moment? You know, we're not all, especially we're a prep school, so we fin- we go up to the age of 13 at the moment. But um, so our strength and conditioning, our, uh, that type of program is, not, is in its infant stage until we move into a senior school. So we don't all have um, sort of that kind of personnel at our school. But all the children at home, and I am doing the daily workout every <laughs> single day, but... Um, 
um, I, I, I recommend doing the movement prep. I called it movement prep and they do it. They do it. And it, it was great. And, you know, they were showing their mums, dads it as well. So, yeah, I, I, I brought that in and I so, so far so good, you know, and will I change it? Of course I will. I, I, you need to make it interesting. You need to change it. And could we, as they grow older, could we um, like a sandbag to do their squats from the like goblin squats at the front? Of course we can. So, yeah, that, that's one thing. I'll just quickly touch on another thing. Um, that uh, I just wanted to make sure, and Doris, I, I, I assume, I mean, this is so important that I think, for instance, one age group, we've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I teams. We've got nine teams. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's because it's, I think it's six, seven aside. But what you have to make sure, and it's absolute paramount, is that it doesn't matter what team you're in, you'll still have the access to the same expertise as everyone else that's that that is absolutely paramount so what um uh, so what we look uh, again is we're launching out of the school is a sport mentor so what happens at our school is there's lots of affiliated coaching so that could be a rowing coach that could be a skin our ski squad's very good tennis we've got a, a tennis pro um equestrian um what else we've got squash we've got lots of different sports but um just because children are so busy, they don't actually sometimes have time to do these extra clubs. Um, or if they do, perhaps it's just once every couple of weeks or what have you. So I set up a sport mentor whereby, very simply, uh, the child could email the uh, the sport mentor, which myself and another staff member could, could host, and we will direct out their questions to these professionals. So essentially the school's playing these professionals, but I suppose it's making it a bit more accessible uh, to every pupil in the school. Now, that hasn't been uh, everything's in place. And it was, guess what? It was going to go uh, yeah. live after the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll probably be September now, well, we hope at least. So, again, you, you asked for a couple of things, perhaps community events. Uh, yeah. I, we did a Cranwell Cantor, okay, uh, so which was like a, um, a thing on the site of the school. They ran off into the surrounding. They came back. But it was it was like a runner's village at the end. We had the electronic timing with the big screen, so those types of things, community events, uh, the movement prep, and and the sport mentor. It's just a couple of things that you know, trying to innovate, trying to trying to improve still. Yeah, and I think the really good thing there is the education is what you're saying is because I think you're you're equipping with the tools to be able to you know do their movement prep or whatever. So you you come up with that, and then it's up to them how they implement it fantastic that some of them want to adapt it and change it that's absolutely perfect and then uh, and then giving them the expertise to some sporting experts you know the mentors that's absolutely fantastic so in terms of um i think you're a really good person to ask this question because you worked in the academy at irish and you've seen what the sort of talented youngsters are that come through at that level and you've you've worked with younger pros um, when you've been working with the first teams and stuff and playing with playing with them. What's, what do you think are the key things for, for young athletes should be doing now? So you've worked with, a lot, I'm sort of going around a little bit around the houses, so the simple thing is <laughs> you've worked with a, a lot of um, pro athletes. What, what sorts of things do you think are important to be doing now? What, what are you looking to, from, from what you've seen at that level, the kids that make it through to the academies or to, to the pro game, what sort of things could be could the, the kids you're working with now, what sort of things could they be doing to prepare themselves if, if that was the path that they wanted to choose? Yeah, well, again, absolutely. And I feel, I don't know, I'll perhaps I'll stop saying this, but this is just my personal opinion. Because um, 
again, there's there's evidence about early specialism, um, and there'll be evidence to counter that, no doubt. Of course, there's always is. I bet there's some Brazilian footballers that have only ever played uh, football um, their whole lives, yeah, from yeah. the slums, from the roads, that. But, um, and again, seen it firsthand in my la- in the last eighteen months. I did not know the game of hockey. I had a great experience going to watch Danny Kerry over at GB Hockey over at Bishop Abbey uh, a few years ago. But other than that, that, nothing. And I watched it at the Olympics. However, what an amazing game that is. Like the fo- Again, um, whoever the union, I, I presume it is GB Hockey, um, or the national body, but again, and you can see it firsthand, what, what, what unions, what sort of bodies have done different things to make the game better for these youngsters? And again, the self-pass... Um, and the quick tempo of the game, the 360 game. So I could see straight away the crossover skills, 360 game, spatial awareness for football, f- playing football to hockey, you know. And and I just think that it must, and burnout, we know, again, there's been papers on that about uh, burnout. And, and in particular, if, if these young footballers who just are sick of the game. Mm. So, uh, and again, uh, some some rugby players that I know with their, their, their one-handed ability and their, their passing, again, the, what they uh, they give the benefit from playing basketball. So I think perhaps my first answer to that, it would be um, all different sports when they're younger. That, mm. And that's just from seeing it firsthand and hearing people's experience. Um, I just think, you know, and, and, and hopefully it's not a contradiction to what I've just said, but if, if hand on heart, maybe I, I can now say it because I, I work with these children day in, day out. So I think someone who's at 12, just say they come up to you. I think before that, mate, some of them want to be a post box, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at 12, I think, you know, you can have some great mature conversations with some of these children. And they could, if they turn around to you and say, I really want to be a professional web player, then I feel that as long as I say to them, look, education is the most important thing. <laughs> Um, make sure you do it, that you're always enjoying it. Now, again, there's that difference between fun and enjoyment. Um, but I reckon I could, what you think you're doing at the moment, I reckon we could raise the capacity another 200%. So we could train like this. We could train like that. You could do this type of passing. You could do this type of running. You could do this type of movement which could give you, I can't guarantee you, but in my experience or what I've seen, it could give you a better chance, you know. And I talked, to, I just mentioned briefly that, that that fantastic under 13 that's going off to his senior school, but, you know, he, he can't pass with his left hand, you know. So I'll, I'll be like, well, surely if we could get you to pass off your left hand before you go to your senior school, surely that gives you a better chance. Now that one now, because again, teaching through games for understanding don't do don't do drills do do drills it depends but what i do feel is if he can pass off his left hand really really well then that allows him to make decisions more comfortably because he doesn't have to think about this wobbly pass that's coming out of his left hand so again i feel that a type of work ethic and a type of lifestyle already that could set them up but 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 doing that very carefully knowing the child knowing about how much they should do because already you think oh my gosh they're doing too much because we feel we know about that don't we simon so um multi-sports there could be a sense of 
well, this could steer you uh, by doing maybe quality over quantity. Um, and what else, perhaps, you know, would you like the power of three, don't we? So I've just given you two. Uh, perhaps I'll leave one open because yeah. what I've seen as well is, geez, no, and I'm stating the obvious here, no two children are the same. And boy, that was, when we're dealing with an academy of 450 children under 13s, rightly or wrongly, and that does narrow up to about 40 under 18s. Wow, it's just amazing, isn't it? How diverse yeah. everyone could be. But that's life. <laughs> yeah, I think that, there's a couple of things you sort of you touched on there that are really interesting. I think one of the most important things is working in a school and getting to see all the different sports and all the different sports coaches at work and things that you might have taken as like, oh, it should all be games. And then seeing some of the stuff they do in hockey, which is a little bit individualised, you know, it's just one or it's, it's just them and the stick practising their ball skills or whatever. And it actually has a huge, I've seen that has a huge impact on those players. So they do do a lot of games, but they also do practise their individual skills and, and just getting get to experience other sports, other skills. So you, you talk about the kids playing, I think for a coach watching other sport coaches, coaching is really interesting. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that about arming them with things that they can take forward that will really help them at the pro level but if they never do that, we'll really help them. So learning how to, to push Paul Ben to a squat lunge. We talked about some of the psychological things, tools that will help you, whether you're writing a report at work or whether you're trying to work on your individual development as a rugby player. So I think there's some, some really interesting things around that, that arm them, whatever they're going to do, it will help them in their career. And I think that's in educating. That's what you're, you're doing yeah. is educating them for, for life whether that happens to be pro sport or, or whatever, I think there is a lot of crossover with those things. Yeah, you get, exactly. I'm talking from one sport lover to another. You, at what least you want, the, the least that you want is them to be doing, um, there was a, a guy, uh, there's a guy down Sutton Epsom Rugby Club, he played Sunday league football into his 60s. Yeah. I mean, that is just so yeah. magic. Yeah. And if you can, if, if there's one thing, you can hold your head up high and you can and say to yourself, and there's no guarantees. Geez, we know that because there's genetic makeup on that. But um, I'm giving them a good chance to 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 not even do sport, to do to be active, because we know actually, and it's perfectly acceptable just to like going down the gym and doing yeah. personal fitness without doing a sport, or just go, um, to, for for as long as they can and and, and injury free. And perhaps if yeah, I suppose that could be the amazing thing. And then similar to your industry about how how you can do that, um, you know, how you can do that. I, I had, there's this thing about at the moment, um, because there's more home fitness workouts happening yeah. right now than anything else. Well, yeah. then they're picking up, people are pick, picking up little niggles. Yeah. And you think about the lockdown that we're in at the moment, and that, that, that just sets them back a little bit more. And I had a friend who had a hamstring problem a week ago. So uh, I said, right, I've got the man because I had a little calf problem. So who yeah. did I speak to? Andre, yeah. uh, our friend. And then Andre, uh, he sorted my calf out but just by over a couple of sending me some videos of what to do. And then I sent my mate to him. So, yeah, I think referring what I've just spoken about back to school and, and actually learning off each other. See, it is an interesting um, thing that I noticed. So, we run about 30, 40 extra curriculum clubs from archery, table tennis, you name it, we do it. But Chelsea football, because of the geography, they run a club all year round uh, after school. And and, 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 and and there's a lot of drills in that, yeah? And these are for young children. But gosh, 
are they loving it? They are loving it. They're loving going around the cones. And we must be reminded about that. It's sure the engagement and enjoy uh, the enjoyment factor has got to be there. And these these lads, again, Chelsea might get a bad rap. In, in the, I'm not sure why, but they, they turn up half an hour early. And, and I can say that a lot of other clubs don't do this. Everything's laid out. I mean, everything's perfectly laid out and it just sets it up well where the children can see it. Their eyes light up. Yeah, it's Chelsea football. Yeah. Oh, we've got the goals out. Yeah, we've got the cones. And, and and I just reminded a few other of our clubs that were getting run at the school. If you, you know, who turn up with just two balls two minutes before the club starts, just go and have a look at Chelsea football. Um, and I'm not a Chelsea, uh, I'm not a Chelsea supporter. I support another team, yeah. <laughs> Arsenal, in fact. So yeah. it's not because of that, but it was just, you know, credit where it's due. That was awesome to watch. So, again, it's that type of thing that can really help each other whilst we're at school. So I know we're talking about two things there. One, about the type of different coaching sessions uh, and what's getting delivered, but also, of course, what's within it that can really help them long term as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of like the first half hour. And I th- I, there's so much people can take away from that. I think it's fascinating. And what I'd really like to go into depth now, and we'll, we'll just go off on one and just see where the con- there's no sort of structure for it. Um, I'm really interested in your playing career, l- reflecting back on that as a coach. But, but more importantly than that, I'm really interested in stories. I love stories. And that, that's where I see value. There's so much, there's so many webinars now. And I've been doing SNC a long time. And when you go to the conferences after a while, you're getting a bit of repetitive information coming through and the real value is in the little conversations at the coffee breaks and oh have you heard about that story and so I'm interested in stories so I want to get a couple of stories out of you so we'll start off with the one um about Wasps Bristol so yeah so yeah I, I think it was just a real important time me realizing that I w- hadn't made the England under 19s team and then this mad search basically long and short of it somebody said you've got to get to an academy uh, rightly or wrongly, as I said, Harlequins, that wasn't good for me then. Uh, so was. And it just so happened that there, so I was 19. It was, uh, so under 21s, they ran a league parallel to the premiership. Um, so if you were, pl- if, if the first team were playing Bristol as a was, um, then the under 21s were either on the same day or the night before or something like that. So I think it was the last few months of the season. Like I say, I got down to Wasps and it just so happened that the his name's Alex Page, great scrum half. Um, he had probably 50 appearances for the Welsh first team. Um, Millfield boy, I'm sure. But he was 21, a couple of years older than me. And it just so happened that I had, uh, he had been pulled up into the first team. So after a few weeks training, I mean, this is the likes of where uh, Paul Saki were there, uh, Ringley was there, uh, Ali McKenzie. So guys that represented their country. Um that 21s team, I made so the last game of the season was against Bristol up at Clifton, where ironically Pat Lamb has Bristol now training. They've gone back there, although they're building a new training facility, aren't they? So I am. Um, so yeah, so the last game of the season was Bristol. Uh, Bristol versus Wasps. I was playing for Wasps. Started, went up to 
to Bristol and played a game. And I think we Bristol were a gun team. Uh, they were probably the best under 21s team around for a few years. And it and and uh, but and we played really well. I I actually had a really good game. Got man the match. We lost the game. But anyway, my mum and dad. Uh, my late mum and dad, who who aren't with us today, they were my most avid supporters, and of course they came to watch this game. But did I go back? So I wouldn't go back on the coach. So I was then in the bar area, sitting down on my own. My mum and dad, I think, were speaking to some other people. They always make friends, usually over a beer. Was, there was some Premiership TV, uh, some rugby on, so I'm watching that. All of a sudden, um, Jack Row. Jack Rowe comes along and sits next to me on my left, and Paul Hull. So Jack Rowe was the uh, Bristol head coach, uh, obviously England manager as well, England coach as well at some period. Paul Hull came and sat down on my neck uh, to my right, and they said, oh, "You had a great game today, son." I was like, "Yep, yeah, thank you very much." Um, they said, "We'd like to offer you a contract," uh, and I was like, "Whoa, um, okay, uh, this is interesting." Um, anyway, whilst this, they, they talked a bit more than that. And whilst that was happening, uh, my phone started to ring, and it was the WAS Under 21s team manager. They were on the M4 going back to London, and he said, "Paul, um, we uh, we want to offer you a contract." And I said, "Well, hang a minute. How can this be?" Uh, <laughs> and, and, and the long and short of it was, there were some parents of another. Um, another wasp player that stood back, uh, stayed back at the bar, and they decided to um, stick around. And they had phoned their son, who was on the coach, who'd gone down to the front of the coach. <laughs> said uh, so, um, and 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 the week that was after that was going back to the decision I had had to make um, of whether I stay at Wasps. Uh, I think two year, three year academy deal. I mean, we we're talking. I don't mind. We were talking about. Eight, nine, ten. I think in the end, I think I signed for Bristol for twelve grand a year. But it wasn't that; it was the opportunity. Uh, it was to go alongside. And actually, the second story to this is because it involves the same man. So I decided to sign for Bristol, and um, I went up there. Um, I still went into halls, which were in the city. Yeah. So Bristol. Uh, so it was at UE, uh, West of England University. So I went into halls and. Um, yeah, that was an experience because as you're getting up at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning for academy training, people are getting in. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the best environment to be a, a, trying to be a young pro. But uh, I am, um, I suppose one of the main things about going to Bristol was they fully supported and they would uh, help you out with a bit of your tuition fees at the university. However, pre-season happened, and after a few weeks, I got called into Jack Rail's office again. They said, right, uh, how was your uni going? And I said, yeah, it's going great, thanks. You're going good. They said, some bad news. I was like, oh, no, they're putting the funding or something. They said, um, you're not going to go to university anymore. <laughs> I said, why? And they said, look, to be fair, we want you to be third choice scrum half for the for the first team, but um, that means that we need you to train full-time, which means, obviously, you can go there on your day off, so I was like, oh, no. I mean, this was early stages, and I had to, that meant I had to phone my parents. And, again, you just – it's you know, parents are just the most incredible thing because I phoned them up. I was absolutely petrified telling them, you know, this is was this was the agreement that I signed up for. It was university and rugby. I told them the conversation they had, and they said, Paul, there's no decision, is there? I said, there's not. They said, no. They said, give up university and crack on with um, – full-time rugby and I said really I said yeah you, you only have this opportunity once you've got to take it and the final bit to that was um, 
Uh, I just felt, again, because I'll tell you my, result, my results, because I'm not trying to, to sound like uh, I'm a big cheese, but what I decided to, off the back of that conversation with my parents, I said, well, I'm going to stick at the university. It was an accountancy and finance degree. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, if there was any degree that you had to actually be there in the lectures and the tutors, it was this one. But I remember because I, I obviously quickly made friends with a, a keen Bristol uh, Shogun supporter who was at the university, and he said he'd help me out a fair bit. But I remember group assignments. I didn't know anyone on my course apart from him, who I used to give tickets to all the time to help me out. <laughs> but um, group assignments, I'd keep on getting like, well, 0%, 0%. But the long story short was I managed to pass that first year without attending one lecture or tutor. I think I got something like 42%. So I scraped a pass. But what it did get me was into year two. And that was the main thing. And I did the same thing in year two to get into year three. But my luck ran out because I failed my third year. Because that was the championship year where, um, yeah, I think my, my head was really elsewhere. And you playing more as well. Yeah, it? exactly. I think I managed six appearances for the first team in my first year. I played every Bristol under-21s game, but then I sometimes doubled up. Again, something you'd never do now. Yeah. And then in my second year, the same sort. Uh, I think I was fortunate of uh, Pete Richards and, oh my gosh, now Dean Ryan had left the first year. I think it was, I can't remember the manager that, or the, the, the coach, but they fell out. Um, I think it was because he felt, maybe rightly, that P-Shop, he didn't matter how he played, he just used to get p- played every week. Um, so he, he was second choice, so he soon wasn't to be second choice, and then I started getting some bench appearances, which is great because I think my bonus for being a bench player was like a month's wages compared to <laughs> my salary. Um, yeah, my third – so then then we got relegated. Um, and then, yeah, by that time, when you're in the championship, you're going to Rotherham, you're going down to Plymouth, you're going to uh, 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 Cornish Pirates. So there's a lot of travelling, yeah. So that didn't work out. So I had to wait 10 years later to pick up my degree. <laughs> and so that, I, I would have thought there's not many – how old were you uh, in that first year when they offered you the – 18, 19, yeah. So I would say there wouldn't be too many 18, 19 year olds if they rang that like scared, ring their mum and dad up. And like, no, no, just go and play rugby. There wouldn't be too many that would go off and do the degree. Maybe more so now because I think kids are a bit more clued up and to have a few more conversations. But I would have thought maybe back then, what what was your, what was the process behind you deciding to to carry on with a degree? Um, Simon, mate, you're good at this, mate. That's a good question because I've always been a warrior. And actually, my my eldest, she's eight years old. And this virtual schooling, and it, which the school do an incredible job, but she's a warrior, and yeah. I think, and I was a warrior, but you know, a warrior that I didn't ever want to let a teacher down, I never want to leave a uh, a family member down. The, the, the thought of ever getting told off would just crucify me. But I would, um, yeah, I think it was that I was like, well, you know, and and again, I tell you straight up, I needed financial help from my mum and dad to to get through those uh, those those years. I was only in like very little money but um and it was just a little way of saying things oh and the worrying part was um this this could quite possibly not work out you know i I knew how um fickle but i knew how cutthroat it was and how tough it was to make it and i just i I was i remember my careers advisor at um at sort of 15 16 what do you want to be when you're older i said uh i said said accountant (laughs) that's why i went to because that was the only job that I knew, again, poor advice, that apparently earned a, a lot of money. That's the only job that I knew um, that earned a lot of money. So 
um, I, I, I knew that I had to have something and I was I was really petrified if if rugby didn't work out that I would be needing to get a job and and I just needed some kind of uh, qualifications with it. Yeah. So you had Jack Rowell, ex-England coach, as your head coach. Yeah. When you were there, you had August, uh, Augustine Pichot. Was yeah. Contepomi there at that stage? Yeah, yeah, Contepomi was great. Yeah. So yeah. What, what was sort of looking back with your coach's eyes now, looking back on the environment you had back then, what what was that like? I mean, obviously you could talk about it, what it was like as a player, but I'm more interested in you reflecting back on that with everything you know about coaching and having been coaching young kids at, in academies and things like that. What what was that like for you then? Yeah, I mean, geez. Um, now that I know how tough coaching is at the top end level, but, even, but now looking back, I think the that was probably one of the toughest probably coaching gigs you could have had. And why was that? Um, I think it was Malcolm Pierce was the owner. And I think it was estimated that he was chucking in like, like millions, like all owners do. But there was like the rumor about how much he was losing every year. And it was a rock star um, team that I think this is where a lot of the individuals almost as some of the individuals weren't, weren't making a good team so on paper they should have been performing a lot better and they should never have got relegated but the likes of Augustine Pichot at 9 Felipe Contemporani at 10 the backup was Shane Drum a magician uh, Andrew Higgins Phil Christophers you had um, Lee Best but then some great fours Andrew Sheridan Julian White you had some some, some very <laughs> huh? you look at what those guys went on and did that's astonishing oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, at that point exactly uh, David Reese on one wing. And, um, yeah, I just think that there were so many personalities and the Argentinian halfbacks being perhaps up there with the strongest, that that must have been really hard. And I think we'll probably speak about it a lot, about how now, and I think it's quite known, that personal skills, man management, communication is up there with the most important thing for coaches at all levels but boy, it must have been that time now. So I, I looking back at the time, I had no clue. I was young, 18, 19. I was like, is this the way it is? Um, but now looking back, I just think it must have been so tough um, because maybe the, an owner who said, don't ever drop your nine and ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had then some Shane Drum, feisty Australian who I saw knock out people twice his size in in like bars with like a like a Bruce Lee to each punch, like he was a boxer, you know, yeah. but he was behind Felipe Contemponi and, you know, some real tough personalities that I just felt now looking back, I would, I would have hated to try and manage that. And I think single-handedly that must have been the toughest thing. Um, looking back. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back. Um, I mean, design practice, it was pretty box standard in terms of there was an attack day, there was a defense day, there was a team run day, there was units. Um, there was a. Uh, you'll be interested in this. There was a. We used to. We used to train. Oh my gosh! We used to train at a gym. Um. Oh, I'm sure it's called the church. <laughs> yeah, I think it was called the church, and it was in St Paul's. Which, if people don't know, it's. It's one of the. Uh, uh, sort of. Uh, yeah. It's. 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 it's Poverty probably there, if that's the right word, but yeah, low income area, which is which is I think they've tried numerous times to regenerate, but um, 
so much so that actually my third year me and my mate got a, a flat there why do we get a flat there because we could afford a we rented a penthouse <laughs> <laughs> because it was it was affordable um, but we used to use this gym and you could tell it was a gym full of um bouncers it was a uh, probably drug dealers it was probably filled with uh, there was a lot of bodybuilders in there um, and it was busier in the daytime than it was in the evenings because of that's just the type of people. But we used to get our own little room there, um, and quite common, yeah, uh, quite common. You'd see somebody coming out with their their, their bicep hanging off their. So this this would be like the normal punters because they rip the bicep off off the muscle, and you don't need to be a, an expert to work out why why that's so prone there at this gym. But anyway, uh, in this one room in particular where we used to train, and I remember again, it's just your memories of it. Bench, squats, cleans. Bench, squats, cleans. That's all we ever did. Like honestly, we, if it was if it was a, a forty-five minute session, you do that for forty minutes, and then it'd be like, okay, lap pull downs and sit ups for the last five minutes. Mm. And there was a room where uh, Andrew Sheridan, Julian White, and another guy, Richard Scoose, who became a very very good friend of mine, a proper Bristonian. Again, that guy. If he could tell, well, I don't know what he's up to now, but he's he's got some stories. But these three guys were absolute gym monsters. I mean, they were pushing around so much weight. It was unbelievable. And what that actually did for me, though, I mean, I was knocking around 76, 77 kgs. You think about what I look like compared to them. But that really instilled in me um, the fundamentals of Olympic lifting. And actually, I took that on. And I, there was there was um, my second year under an Irish which I think was quite significant in my career, where we went out, and I'll tell this later, um, we went out to Spala in Poland and did a training camp. And there was stuff that happened out there that I think really gave me a little bit of a springboard, uh, a bit of respect, I think. But yeah, it all happened in this dungeon of a, of a place which had the most interesting characters there. Um, and uh, again, um, that's where I was introduced to... Um, creatine <laughs> yeah exactly so it's protein shakes and everything but uh creatine and stuff but um yeah and, and so that so looking back that's my memories of bristol it was it was star-studded teams that underperformed a star-studded team that underperformed but it was the making uh, of the strength and conditioning side of things and actually one more thing to touch on that were sand dunes with no water nearby okay <laughs> and this was this was going over the River Seven, Merthyrma. Again, I might have got that wrong, but these sand dunes, which again aren't near the sea, right? <laughs> and it was the most. I think to this day, uh, we used to go there every Tuesday morning, and to this day, it's probably up there with the hardest fitness sessions that I've ever done. One, I was young, and which again I learned that actually you can build a fitness base over years. Again, something that Mike Cat taught me. We'll talk about that later, but also. Um, Again, practicing fitness tests or fitness sessions, practicing fitness tests or fitness sessions, boy, did that help you out. And if I'd done some sort of uh, a couple of sessions over there before the team had gone over there, I would have made my life so much easier. But again, getting up sand dunes where my my sort of foot pattern was every three was to everybody else's one. And then to learn little tricks that they had about and it sounds so obvious now, but use the same footprints as the as the others. Um, but again, Phil Christopher's came back from the England tour. His first one, I looked round behind me and he was getting pulled around the corner with his arms around somebody either side. Uh, and the coach journey over there was just quiet. You could hear a pin drop. 
But the coach journey on the way back to Bristol over the bridge was just elation because we had done it for another week. <laughs> it's over. It's over. It's over. But again, you, know, you talk about things that form your career, the strength and conditioning and the fitness side of things, but also, yeah, that star-studded team. Um, and boy, the coaches would have had a tough team managing those personalities. Excuse me. And so it doesn't sound like... <clears throat> A huge deal was that much different back then so you know you do your units and skills and all the rest of it um what was it like with Pisho? was he did you have much interaction with him was he someone to sort of learn from and it's like Contopomi obviously is now a very big coach he's doing very 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 well was there was there much interaction from him was he taking your side what sort of things was he doing with you if he was yeah, uh, I think Pichot's an interesting character. I mean, pre-season, we went over to Argentina once for a, for a, for a camp, for a trip with Bristol. Again, probably something that Auguste and and uh, Felipe was able to set up. But I remember we got there late at night and uh, the next morning you wake up. Well, the first thing you do is blinds, curtains. And I promise you, I don't know if you're watching the Michael Jordan uh, sort of the Last Dance documentary at the moment, which is fantastic. But you see some of those billboards with with Michael Jordan on it, well, outside of our window, and I, I was still a bit suspect about <laughs> did they pick this hotel? But there was there was P shot and mate, this 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 billboard was he is again he is such a big timer over there, which he wouldn't in Bristol. He was a big name, but again, like he would be able to probably walk down the street uh, and people not notice him. But however, um, out of all the youngsters, he'd probably give me the most amount of time because of the position and uh, and the relationship we do with little skill practices. But again, I didn't really learn any of my, um, my work ethic or what it's needed to be a pro because surprisingly, and this maybe tells you why the team didn't do well, it wasn't one of those environments that you hear where somebody spends hours after or on their days off. And ironically, and I think this has happened a fair few times throughout my career, that the hardest trainers, and this is just for what I've seen, are quite often the guy who's not in the team. There was this fullback from New Zealand, Matt, Matt Cairns. Jeez. Um, I'm sure it was. And again, he didn't ever quite get in the team and um he'd be the one out there hours 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 afterwards on his day off could he get in the team no so i'd love to say yeah the romantic story of of and i have seen this in other situations like what you see with 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 farrell ford and wilkinson is 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 bang on true but in that time i didn't get any of my work ethic from from those guys they it seemed to be and i think it was on the the, pro, the game had been pro for only four years, I mean, which is nothing. And maybe this was still the... Um, and actually, the story goes that the, the team, a couple of years before that, had gone bust and then came back again. People had literally, on the Tuesday night, been told they'd all been sacked, went off to get jobs, build the labours, come back again. So I think there was still a bit of the amateur game there. But I didn't really get... Um, it wasn't one of those where people stay out after training for ages or anything like that. But my relationship with Pichot was good. Um, but he was quite, um, as I say, he's quite a big timer. Um, and it seemed like he would come in, do his thing, get home. You know, these, the culture of, of South Americans and, and, and other sort of nationalities is that they go to bed late um, and they have like a siesta, right? And I think a lot of time you'd see him rocking up to training minutes before. Look, I bet, I bet you he wouldn't have had breakfast. Um, he'd often admit it. 
and um, that he'd only just woken up. And I got told a story once that he turned up to a game on a Sunday at the Memorial Stadium for three o'clock and he admitted that he, well, it's not a big bad thing, but he, he had slept all morning, which a lot of guys do, or they have breakfast and go back to bed, but he just slept all morning. So he, he'd gone to one, you know, Cornish pasties, was, was obviously um, pretty damn good at the ground. He would go to, a, to get a Cornish pasty a couple of hours before the game and that was his pre-match nutrition so you get what i'm saying when uh, i didn't get like the professional type of experience whilst i was there i'm just gonna say because i'll tell you why that was apparent i remember when i started doing a bit with england sevens or doing a bit and, and and hearing about a few other things what people are doing so then for i would start doing things on my day off i'd go to david lloyd in the evenings to do uh, extra weight sessions and I remember when Paul Hull, who was our England 21s coach, and I must say that he, it wasn't so much of a work ethic, but he was more of a disciplinary guy. He was just quite tough. So I, I owe credit to him. But he spotted me once over on the common. He goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I just thought I'd come out and do some like, um, like 20, uh, 20, 50 meter sprints type of thing. He was like, why? I said, mate, just because I want to get faster. I want to try and build up a bit of speed endurance. He goes, mate, that is awesome. Well done. Well done. And I was like, okay, but it, it just looking back now, it just made me think that it wasn't the type of thing people did. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting as well because <clears throat> oftentimes uh, you have a, a real star player or a club and the commentary in the press and et cetera will be, oh, what a great opportunity for the young guys going in there because they work, you know, they're playing under this fantastic talent. But I think often, we'll, we'll get into this maybe a little bit later about skill, ac skill acquisition, one of the things that I sort of noticed there is some of the best are the best because they don't think about it and they don't necessarily process it and sit down and analyse it. I, I've got a bit of a weird theory about that, which is maybe a bit controversial. So I, I think some of the very, very best are a little bit thick so that when the coach is giving them loads of technical instruction, they're just sitting there with their mind on going out in the evening or whatever and all this technical instruction sort of bouncing off them. Yeah. And, and, and so there is a bit of a myth about that, that you go, oh, there's a fantastic player. You're going to learn a lot from him. But actually, they're so good at the game. They don't need to be doing all the extras and they don't know how to tell young players how to do that they and it could give you a, a bad work ethic because you look at him you go oh he's just swanning in having a couple of Cornish pasties and then scoring yeah. 40 points it's not well I, I again I think what you've just said has a lot of yeah merit because he he, he did P-Shot didn't do loads of extras um his pass he would be the first to admit wasn't 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 amazing but geez um his acceleration his uh, i think somebody even mentioned it his anticipation to to sort of do things like his quick taps his breaks um again nature nurture what's come before but whatever he was doing as a kid or what he was born with and and so forth but in those three years or two years that actually we worked together i i didn't see anything that in that time would give would give would really help me in terms of the way he trained. Geez, I looked about, I watched his videos back, sometimes live, sometimes from the bench, sometimes back on the tape, um, about uh, his opportunity for breaks. But I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a passer, he wasn't really a box kicker. So um, it was all about his tenacious, his feisty, again, like he could wind up people, again, that type of character. But it's interesting that he's gone on to be uh, I mean, he was obviously up for the World Rugby um, chairman, president, um, which obviously, unfortunately, he lost. Fortunately, unfortunately, for, for what, what have you. But um, 
I think that would have been because he's of a, a very high calibre in his own country. And uh, there's no doubt. I mean, you can hear him talk. He does it with passion. Um, I don't really know about what else he's, he's, he's sort of got in his background. Whereas Felipe, um, again, I would love to be here and say that I used to see loads of extras or used to be the hardest working trader. No, again, a lot of natural ability. Um, I mean, I've only seen a short window of their careers, but a guy that was very much practicing being a doctor, of course, we know, um, at Brunel. So, um, you know, there's some form of um, academic, uh, sensible type of character. So maybe that's why, not why, but maybe that's explains a bit more about his coaching. You know, cause it's, it's of the time as well, isn't it? You know, it's, rugby, like you said, had not long been professional. A lot of people were trying to work out how it was going to work. I remember um, there was a few people that said, you know, when rugby first went professional, they're like, right, you're a professional, you've got 40 hours a week, we're going to train you 40 hours a week. And, yeah. and, and then the pendulum swung the other way, they weren't doing it, and it was a lot of people finding their feet. So, so where did that work ethic come from then? You know, it was, as you say, that would be quite unusual then for, for anyone to be going off and doing that, that sort of level of work. Where, where did that come from for you? Yeah, I generally honestly think because... Um, I, I didn't think that I had the natural ability of a pea shop or quantum pony. Um, I, 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 I felt, so I was quite fast. Well, I thought I was fast at the time. Had decent footwork. Uh, my core skills weren't great. Um, and it's interesting, and I'm interested to, to pick your brains on this about skill act, because I honestly believe that I reckon that I passed because I was so conscious of it, because I ended up not having a great pass. I had a good pass, I had something that I could do that I felt was was good, and that was get the ball away from a breakdown very quickly. But distance and power, I, I certainly wasn't up there with the best. So again, we'll, we'll talk about this another time. But about I practiced so much, and this so so Paul Hull, I mentioned him. Richard Hill talked about, although I think he's admitted that he made it up about how he used to do 200 passes a day. Why don't you do that? Okay, I'll do that. But I think again, it was me being the warrior. Um, but also me being conscious that there was a lot of other better people around me. Um, like, so when I, I grew up, I was the same age as Harry Ellis. Um, so I saw him a lot on the age group stuff. And there was even better one, in my opinion, Nick Duncan, who sadly passed away at sort of 20 years old for Harlequins. Again, he, it seemed like he had all the core skills and he was so elusive, fast, um, and could see an eye. So it's just... I think a part of it was from me, um, but then you slowly start bumping into other people that also have a, a big work ethic. Um, but I, I, for a long time, I'm, I'm talking, even when I got to London Irish, there was still a sense of the amateur era and that place at Sunbury, which apparently if the Four Provinces Bar could tell stories of after matches, you know, it really reaped in history there that even the players... Um, yeah, I'd see a Barry Everett doing extra kicking practice, but again, I felt like I was the one leading it. I, I used to, I used to get in there. I remember having a shocking game uh, against Worcester. I think we ended up losing, playing for Lanarish. So what? The, all I thought was, well, Monday I'll try and get in there an hour early. I'll be out on the pitch. Now, obviously, somebody who could be sceptical about it would go, "Oh, you're just doing that because." But I, I said, "What other choice is there?" <laughs> it was common sense to me. I either don't do it and just re- expect the same result or do do it um but 
and also there's a theory that I've got is that you uh, and again I probably missed the boat on this because I didn't get those early experiences but when I see what Wilkinson how he used to train okay so I'm talking about I know people can't see but if what I was talking about the environment that I came into 18 19 20 was at zero and I, I I sort of them through experiences that I probably can't recall now but for whatever reason a lot of it was from within I took the work ethic up to five now so from zero to five and then then you meet somebody like Johnny Wilkinson that takes it to like 25 and you but I also think you need to be conditioned to be able to hold that within a week because if the, the, the average professional rugby player tried to do what he did in a week they would be absolutely shot for the match. I absolutely guarantee you um, they wouldn't be able to be going to a game fresh because we know how important that is. So I think even from a young age, um, you have to be almost conditioning your workload, I presume, to be able to um, withstand that, to be able to go into a game to, or to perform. That, that's really interesting you say that because uh, Andre that we've mentioned a couple of times already is, is Andre Quinn, who was the uh, strength and conditioning coach at London Irish. And I, I've sort of talked to him, had a big in-depth conversation. And one of the things that he was talking about in, in his stories was this huge spike in volume that London Irish went through from when Tom Coventry came in and then Brendan Venter. And it was <laughs> they, it just it blew his mind. He thought it was going to be loads of injuries. But actually what it was, it was the way that they got there, the stepwise progression they took together. I felt at the end of a week, I would do a captain's run and I still had a little bit of fatigue left in my legs. So you've done a big Tuesday. Maybe you've had Wednesday off. Thursday, you've done a bit of an explosive power in the morning, a light session, an explosive session in the afternoon. Friday morning, a captain's run, which is like a 20, 30 minute session. And then you know that you've got the game the next day. Right. I'm going to be horizontal all afternoon. Might have a massage. I need to be fresh. But he would go out and do three, four hours of kicking that, that Friday afternoon. I just never could get my head around that. And again, you know, knowing that I was at this time, um, and I suppose uh, to say that I was fitter than him isn't true because you can't determine that. But there was a fitness test that England did at the time, which I was definitely, um, I could definitely be the best at. So I knew it was nothing to do with fitness, but I just knew it was something to do with being able to recover and what your body could hold. And uh, that was certainly a lesson. Um, and I think his influence to the likes of Owen Farrell and George Ford, because again, I remember a, a scenario where they were like under 16s and they were very good already. There's no doubt about that. Their dads were heavily influential and probably their dad set up a little meeting with Johnny Wilkinson, the best player in the world. And that they probably just learned the work ethic of him because they, were, they, they, they do the same now. It's interesting that you, you said you attribute your work ethic to like that warrior mentality because yeah. he's spoken about that quite a lot, hasn't he? You know, and and the famous story about him at extra time in the World Cup, or he's got like Clive Woodward's trying to give him some messages and he's off practicing his kicking. He's like, what, what are you going to improve? But it's like, no, I need that to feel better. Yeah. And and you've got that sort of Rocky Road uh, research that Dave Collins etc has done where you need a little bit of trauma to make you feel like you're not safe, which makes you work a little bit harder than what anyone else will do. So it's interesting because it sounds like you would be almost very very similar characters it's, it's the worrying that yeah that, that drives you on to do that little bit extra yeah because you just remind me of a story because we uh gary gold head coach first year at london irish relegation battle yeah <laughs> and so this is 2000 and this is 2004 and i think one of the tools and i know you love your um 
what do you call them, icebreakers at coaches. It wasn't an icebreaker, but it was one of those meetings that we've all been part of where it was like, right, come on, we've all got to have something above our peg, uh, above our hook in the changing rooms that will inspire us. And of course, so we had to, do we have to talk about it or not? But we had to come up with something. A lot of ones, family, my children, religion. I don't think anyone was brave enough to say money, but I think someone else eventually, I, I remember another one with under Toby Booth that they did. Anyway, um, so, and a few other, my cat, um, fear of failure. Yeah, so his, his was fear of failure, right? Mm. So I remember, um, I think one game, two games, we all had these these little posters above our hook. That's fine. And But then, for some reason, the, the head coach then starts, for whatever reason, he decided that his team or the or his philosophy, he didn't want his guys to be uh, fearful of playing. So, uh, and I think they, I think something was lost in translation. I don't think Mike Cat was talking about this in particular, but, they, but basically they said, "Look, we don't want to play you with shackles on. We want you to go out to play." And that, that was definitely London Irish's mentality, uh, DNA, pre pre that season, you know. Uh, under sort of like the first time Brendan Venter was there and the way they used to play this, they used to play expansive. It was like good crack off the field and good crack on the field. So Gary Golder said, no, we're not having that. And actually, uh, I, I, all I remember is uh, the next game, it, it wasn't there. OK, so between Mike Cat and Gary Gold, whether they had an argument or not, his sign was there, which was unusual because all the way around the, the change room, um, there Everyone had their sign, but Mike Cat didn't. Anyhow, for whatever reason, the following week, Sean Fitzpatrick had been organised to come in to do a, a meeting with us as a squad. Brilliant. And it happens all the, happens all the time. It happens quite often where uh, a speaker will come in, a former player or somebody else. You know, we know like military guys, XSAS, they get used a lot. But hey, and guess what? We love them. We love them. It just changes up the week. It's great to listen for people like that. And there he was, and he how did he finish it? How did he finish his 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 twenty minutes of chatting? He said, and something that always drove me was fear of failure. <laughs> yeah, and this was coming from the best hooker in the world. Yeah, yeah, of like fifty years, and I remember a little smirk from White Cat, Gary Gold, our head coach, <laughs> giving the eyes, going, uh oh, shuffling his well, feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and guess what? The following weekend, back in the change room, back at the Majeski Stadium, uh, a crumpled up uh, poster was now straightened and you put above Moscat's here. Fear of failure. But, um, but yeah, and it's, it's funny you talk about that as a driver because there are two pretty, pretty awesome players that let it dr- drove themselves. Um, but even that seems a bit foreign to me because they're in another sort of like stratosphere where you think maybe their fear of failure was not being the best of the best. Whereas my my driver, and it, uh, this is just me speaking from the heart, was I just I, I remember getting my first proper contract for London Irish. It was a three year deal. Conor O'Shea, so Paul Hull had gone from Bristol to London Irish the year before as backs coach, and he had decided. Uh, him and Conor O'Shea had decided to sign me and my mate uh, Richard Scoose. We'd gone down there at Christmas. It was a dream come true because it meant I could move back to Surrey and I signed a three-year deal. And I honestly felt at that point, well, Joe, you know what? That's my next three years of my life sorted. 
I almost felt I'd made it because I just knew that could set me up for getting some qualifications to get another job. Um, but once you're in that, I, and a worrier, I was always worrying unless I, the, the last year of your contract was horrible. I found it horrible. But um, yeah, that, that definitely drove me and, and, and that drove my work ethic, certainly did. Yeah. So uh, while we talk about Mike Cat, you said that um, he sort of taught you a bit of a lesson about developing fitness over a period of time, sort of building it all up. What, what was that? What, how did that? Yeah, great. So, um, and I'll probably touch on the story that I'll speak about later on. So Mike Cat, so um, another, actually that was one of the best signings London Irish made. So if you remember correctly, um, around this time, he came back. The, so he went to the 2003 World Cup, but prior to that, um, prior to that, he hadn't played much for Bath at all. And lots and lots of hamstring problems, lots of hamstring problems. And I think literally they were just trying to say to him, we, we aren't going to give you a big contract to sign. And I know that he signed for London Irish for a relatively small basic, but per game it was significant. So it was a, 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 a play-by-play um, bonus scheme. And the irony was, and I can tell you this, is the next two years I don't think he missed a game. So, <laughs> that, 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 yeah. so he knew. He knew. <laughs> yeah, he knew. He knew. Uh, there you go, testament to the medical staff. Yeah, but um, so he, we arrived at the same time. And again, it felt like a pea shot moment for me. I'm like, brilliant. This guy's been to four World Cups. Different. He's a back. I'm going to just be a sponge around him. I'm going to learn so much from him. And there was a, a video analysis lesson early doors. I didn't even know the guy that well. And I remember that. Um, so I'll tell you this story quickly. So I, it was a Monday morning. I talked about these meetings, which which can be tough, tough to be, especially as a youngster. And, you know, I went to London Irish as like the third or fourth choice. And I think he came around to game two of my first season and I became first choice. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I felt a little bit out of my depth, but I was starting each week. And I remember one particular clip. It was a drop. I can remember that was yesterday. See, the, the warrior is still there. Yeah, yeah. It was a driving ball. And I've. Basically, all I had to do is get the ball from the mall to um, the kicker, probably Barry Everett or Mark Mapletoft, to kick it off the pit. We're in our own 22 to kick it uh, to, for some territory gain. But as I've pulled it out of the mall, I did. I, I remember it. I, I had like a second grab at it. For whatever reason, my grip wasn't good enough. had a second grab. Got rid of the ball. Um, the kicker still got it away, but it probably wasn't as good a kick. In the video analysis, the coaches stood up and said, we need it to be further, the, the kick to be further up the pitch. We're still in a real tough situation here. We're still too close to our try line. And Mike Katz put his hand up and goes, I, I 100% blame the scrum after that. That's Paul's fault. And I'm there going, and, and it wasn't an environment to happen like this. I think it was because it was a good time London Irish and everyone just was happy to get along with each other. But again, he was new to the team and perhaps this is what it was like at Bath. You know, a different environment with Jeremy Gascott, all these guys. Um, they told it how it was. He said, he's fumbled that ball. He's taken too long to give it to the kicker. No wonder he's put him under so much pressure. And I, everyone's looked at me. All those eyes are on me. I'll probably turn red. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, the, and obviously, Mike Cat being Mike Cat, the coach has gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. What he said, what he said. So, um, yeah, that was really good. It, well, it wasn't good at the time, but that's the type of thing that he was bringing to the organization to the team so that year went past um uh, we just survived newcastle away we just survived year two so brian smith arrived the first thing brian smith got was uh the number two strength and conditioner alan ryan from wasps 
Uh, I think he was under Craig White, um, and he was the main man. So he came over, and they said, right, he goes, well, we've got to do what Ross always do. They go to Spala in Poland um, for 10 days. Great. So we went over there, but so this was sort of year one, relegation year, well, uh, relegation battle, survived. Brian Smith came in, new strength and conditioner, we're over in Poland, a couple of signers, not, but not many. And um, we did this 10-day training camp in Poland. And then this is where the crying chamber is, where you're in there for minus 130. You go, you've got to tell me at the end of this story whether that ever made a difference. Yeah. And then uh, apart from placebo. Um, and there we were, and we had our testing. One was a 3K, uh, 3K test, and one was a 1K test. Now, Mike, I'm, I'm 20, 21, no, probably 21, 22. Mike Katz, mid-30s. And I know I'm fit. I was a decent runner, decent athlete. I'm a, mate, he beat me on the 1K and I almost beat him on the 3K, but he beat me. So I came second in both. I was like, fair play to him, fair play to him. Now, I found out two things about that. One, pretty cool. Second, so significant. And one, that formed my career. The first thing was that he reckoned that as a youngster in South Africa, uh, he would go running every morning on the beaches with his dad. And he said that so much so they used to go at six o'clock. But the night before, son, are you coming with me? And Kat, you would go, yeah, dad, I'm coming. Six o'clock. Oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You're coming. But he reckons he built up that that, that that foundation, that base level of fitness that he attributes for him being a really fit guy for the rest of his career, which which I, 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 I believe actually because I used to do loads across countries and, and that was my type of thing when I was younger. I was an 800 meter runner. The second thing, which is so poignant, was he taught me about secret training. <laughs> <laughs> now, essentially, again, poor advice from when I was younger, that um, you get to the end of the season and you get four or five weeks off, um, which now doesn't seem that long, but actually seemed like a long, long time. When you get given a whole month off, so you usually come back, because we never used to make the playoffs, we would always come back the 1st of July. So end of May, mid-May, and you used to go away for about five weeks. So I used to think, right, two weeks off. I used to get given programs, but they were token programs. You know, At the end of the day, you just needed to relax. And I used to go down to the gym, just do some beach weights with my mates. And a bit of running. But he said, to, but he taught me, he goes, that's the time, mate. That's the time. Two weeks before you come back for pre-season, start getting on that road. Start doing some road running. Start working out what the fitness test is if it's a bleep test, if it's a yo-yo, if it's a bronco, 1K, 3K, find out. And by just doing a couple of, again, familiarization, right? And this is no, there's no true thing. And and if you want me to, I can talk to you about this, was the England fitness test that was the whole time I was there, three or four years in the England mix, that I could I could absolutely win every time. But I, I'll be the first to admit that I practiced it. And again, uh, but it, it's, I was never going to be the strongest. I wasn't the fastest. Danny Kerr and Ben Youngs were the faster, faster than me, but I could be the fittest. So over in Poland, we're doing the cryo chambers. We're training two, no, definitely three times a day under Brian Smith. Absolute taskmaster, working us really hard. But learning off Mike Cat about the 3K and 1K. But what happened in Bristol two, three years ago was my calling out in Poland. Huge hall, huge hall, which at the end of the hall was almost like a stage and 25, 30 platform mats, 
Yeah, no doubt. And it just allowed us to all have our own mat. What they did and what they set up so well was that you you go for so day ten, day nine, day ten, you were going for your PBs, right? And you know, like you're training hard, you're doing the cryo chambers, you're you you're, you're supplementing, right? You're feeling good, right? So therefore, everyone was PBing and PBing. But I remember it. I um so I was 77, 78 kgs, um, and I remember I, I can't, sorry, it wasn't squats. But it was definitely bench press. I banged out my PB to this day, I think, probably like one four five, and then um, which which for a seventy eight kg was was and 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 I remember clean and press. I, I think there was only one um, Samoan back, but I I, I bench pressed one uh, clean sorry I cleaned um clean and pressed one two five, and and what they did was there was a stage that you. Every time you got a PB, you go up a mat, and the final one you're going for was on this stage. And, and there was like 40 blokes in there. All management were in there, and they were looking at you. And I think, I think, to be fair to Smithy, I think because he, he he didn't he, he wasn't a massive guy to compliment people, but he would came up to me after that, and he was like fair play. And I think, you know, that was my f- second season, but trying to still be, you know, I was a starter, but you know, I think that. It's funny. I just it was just a moment where a lot of people were like, "Fair play, that's pretty impressive." Now, in actual fact, probably not so much now for a seventy-seven and seventy-eight kg scrum off because um, academies are so much better. That guys are doing strength conditioning yeah. training and, and, and from the age of like fourteen, fifteen. And I used to go as recently as a few years ago on the Monday, Tuesday, or a Thursday night. You go in there before training, and a guy just impresses you about how much they're lifting. But yeah, I do remember that quite, 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 quite significantly as being a. Whereas it was just you know where certain times where you res- they you feel that your respect value goes up. I just think that was one of them out there. Yes, that's that's really interesting, and it's interesting they put you on the stage because it's like that's what focuses you and that's what gives you the old adrenaline rush and it's amazing what you're you're capable of when that kind of thing happens so in terms of um again just sort of looking back from a coaching with your coaching uh, perspective now but at that time what, what what would you say would be the standout good things that happened from coaching you know from sort of anywhere from bristol uh, England, London Irish, Worcester. What, what were sort? Of, were there any sort of things back then that you sort of like that really stand true now today that have stood the test of time? A lot of a lot of what we see now in rugby clubs has been done pretty much since the early two thousands, and it is it is the way it is because it's always been that way. And so, but what what would be the good things that you look back from coaching now that you sort of think, yeah, that's that. You know, we always had that pretty pretty well nailed. Yeah. Well, what I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Richard Hill at Bristol, then I'll go on to Brian Smith, Toby Booth, and Mike Cat, um, and then perhaps we won't mention the guy that I had over at Worcester Warriors. Um, <laughs> however, so uh, so Richard Hill, so we we're in the championship. He was coaching over in Wales, and he came back as the so he was the head coach at Bristol, and we were in the championship year. We had about an average age of about twenty three. And I just remember such an enjoyable year. It was such an enjoyable year. He was quite a funny guy as well, like um, classic. And he even did this back, because don't forget, he signed me for Worcester Warriors. So it, it wasn't him that I was referring to, by the way, when I went back to Worcester Warriors. No, no. It was the second coach. But um, he, he would, team meetings, he would wind up, he'd pull up his sleeves. And, you know, he was like a little bull terrier. And he, to be fair, he could galvanise a group. 
And there was lots of things where he put in place. I remember on a Tuesday afternoon after our team session, we would all do a half an hour, 45 minutes. Backs would do um, just just purely a kicking session. And I don't know if it was because of our age, but it just seemed like we used to fit in so much in a week. Um, And I don't know whether that was planned. Again, this is sorry. This is about eight, 16 years ago. So it was a really he knew the value of um, he was actually doing his level four because I remember he had a week off and Nigel Redman took because Nigel Redman was the forwards coach. So he had a week off to finish off his level four. Um, So that's where he was in his coaching sort of uh, journey. But um, we but again, it's the type of thing that you learn on a level uh, an RFU course. But he was he he saw the value of and it's interesting because Pat Lamb's doing it now, isn't he? But he said the value of Bristol connecting with the community. So every, I think, Wednesday afternoon, we would go out to a school and deliver um, a PE games lesson. So like when I think of that now, it must have been once a fortnight. But we used to do that every fortnight for a whole year. We used to go and deliver a PE games lesson, which, again, third year, no, first year of my full-time coaching uh, playing career, third year of my uh, sort of two years in the academy this is my first year as a full-time pro uh, game is this the norm is that what all players do around the league but it was a really enjoyable year and you know he was all for if we won a game or if we didn't yeah, yeah no, I, I just yeah. wanted to jump in there because I just wondered what what was your perspective on running a PE session as a player with no coaching experience no tools to go in there yeah what, what, what was your perspective on that going in there and doing it yeah, I mean, again, some context. These were very deprived schools that um, they were just so grateful for. I think the teacher was just so grateful for somebody else to come in there. But we would just try and come up with things. Um, I used to do it with James Bailey, my flatmate. And, uh, you know, he was he's, he was a mate, he's such a cool customer, a good looking guy, cool customer. But he, he just knew as um, what they wanted in terms of little games. And I, I felt I did as well, you know. Um, so we, we, again, it just comes back as going. Maybe it wasn't that long. Maybe we only coached for like forty-five minutes or an hour. But one, I can't remember a, a staff member being there from the actual school. We pretty much <laughs> left to our own devices. But I also remember it being relatively straightforward. You know, we were only what were we? Oh, so we were about twenty twenty-one. So again, those are the most things on our own, and it was actually pretty cool to do. But I remember driving over there, driving back again. But other things that did, Richard Hill did that year, yeah, I told you about the. So we used to do scrum half clinics every week, which me and the other three scrum halves would do loads of passing. Um, interestingly, so a, a really quick story. So I was starting for Bristol and I was like, brilliant. I've stayed here in the championship. I know it's probably like game eight, game nine. We'd won half the games, we'd lost half the games. I know I was playing pretty well. But I know also that Richard Hill had reached out to all the premiership clubs saying, does anyone want to loan players to us? And we got Chris Malone, fly half, that unfortunately was only there for about a month, but he was brilliant, but then went back to Bath. All of a sudden, Scotty Beeman, Scotty Beeman, um, I think he's coaching the England women now, I think. Uh, sorry, uh, Loughborough, uh, and then went over to England women. However, he, he was third choice at Harlequins. He came up with the M4, Bench for me once, and I always remember this. So Richard Hill, after training, put me on one side. He goes, Paul, playing really, really well. So thanks, Hilly. He goes, I'm going to put you on the bench this weekend to give Scotty Beeman a go. 
And for somebody so talkative and so positive and so animated, which my personality is, I've never, I, I probably, I can't recall a time that I was speechless. My, and I think it was fear, again, going back to this. Mm. And I, my, 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 my stomach dropped. I just see it later. And again, probably haven't told anyone this, but I went to the change rooms, went to the toilet and cried. And, and the reason I just literally thought, in that instant, I thought my career was over i was like how can this be you know i could be going to a premiership club as a third choice or something but i decided to stay but now i'm benching for the team i couldn't see past that and you know it later came out that actually this was his last game sorry it must have been game four maybe he benched for me three times and in game four he had to play because i think dean richards at harlequin said i've lent loaned you this guy and he's benched three times you've got to play him well he started that game um i came off the bench I know. I remember how it went. It went really well for me. But anyway, afterwards, we're in. I think, I think we're in one of those big communal baths. And he goes, "Ah, oh, Paul's been awesome this month. But I'm going back to Harlequins tomorrow." So long and short of it was that uh, uh, he. I think Hilly said, "Okay, I'll give him this game." Uh, but then the next minute, he was going back to to, to Harlequins. Um, but 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 the point was, Hilly had taken me to one side, but I don't know if he communicated it that well. So one of the things that maybe those one-to-one things, one-to-one things that, um, that's pretty unfair because I always enjoyed Hilly's company. But yeah, as far as the week was goes, there was lots in the week. There were lots of different units, enjoyable year, community stuff, um, probably things that he would have learned by, no doubt, we used to watch the whole game on the Monday morning. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so I think that's something that never happens. I say never. I think he does sometimes, and I think maybe there is. It depends, and maybe there it is depends. a time. Yeah, every now and again, I think there is. But if we're trying to capture an audience, right? But uh, momentum flow. I think sometimes there is a reason. But I learned that from Hedy. Okay, moving on. So then I went to. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I was just going to say just very quickly. That's really interesting about that little story because it's the sort of things I don't know. You, I don't know if you've probably thought about that story for however long. But now looking back as a coach is the sort of the two things, isn't it? It's the, the way that you communicate to people. It's like to you, it's an off the hand conversation. Oh, yeah, by the way, just the courtesy, I'm going to drop you. You think you've done your job, but without actually giving that extra bit of context. And then the other thing is trying to develop what we were saying at the very beginning of the conversation. There's some psychological tools for kids that are going up, that are going to face this trauma and whatever, you know, getting some tools it behind them to be able to cope with things like that so if someone does communicate badly with them they're equipped to sort of deal with it so that's quite an interesting little story really from from that yeah yeah and I think oh geez perhaps why again to mention my my master's for my dissertation for that which was language and communication it was really important for me because I knew the value in it so much I did want to just delve into it a little bit and um, perhaps not as much as I wanted to um, but the the value it could give you. Now that one little snippet I gave you, like I just I just hoped that going forward. Now he essentially he put me on the bench because he felt forced to play another player. And I I, I just always hoped that I could as a coach I could always have honest conversations because there was another significant point and it was towards my end of my London Irish career, oh, career sort of my spell London Irish where. Um, a good friend of mine, Toby Booth, decided not to start me. Um, and geez, I remember the emotions and feelings around that. There was a sense of embarrassment, you know, and, you know, completely being upset by it. But 
the penny dropped for me, maybe because I was older. I was 28, 29. Maybe, th- oh, sorry, no, I had hit 30, so 30. So maybe the experience had taught me he he must he can only be doing it because he believes that by playing the other guy, the, the team's got a better chance of winning. And for some reason, although I shouldn't, you know, for some reason, that made it easier. I was like, good, there's no hidden agenda. Right, it's down to me to now improve. So I just, and, and you can only assume, but that was a big penny drop moment for me. So then I, and I actually did lose it, uh, use it in my communication to players a couple of times. I said, I used my own personal experience. I said, this is when I found out. I said, this is nothing personally. When, when I was a coach, so sorry, what I'm just trying to describe is some of those uh, times that you have to talk to players about not playing this weekend, why they're not playing why they're on the bench or why they're out the 23 you give your reasons you explain your reasons why this is potentially how you could get back in the team but essentially we are only doing picking this team not because of anything else than 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 we feel this is the best team that could win the game and luckily or or significantly hand on heart um kendo deck myself and george and the ones that i coached the senior team with for that two years Hand on heart, we always picked a team that we felt that we could win. But I just felt in that moment with Hilly, it, it, I don't think it was going to be a detriment. The guy was a, a Premiership player, uh, this, uh, this this scrum off that come down from Harlequins. It, but um, he had done it from a different reason. <laughs> I think it's interesting that sometimes coaches avoid having those hard conversations because of like, just can't for whatever reason they can't be doing with the conflicts. But how how was it when you had those honest conversations with the players when you're at Irish when you're coaching? Because I always think it's something I ended up talking about Andre about is like some things get become a big thing and they become the elephant in the room. No one wants to talk about it. And it's, oftentimes it's like get it out in the open, talk about it reasonably with backup. You know, like this is the reason why. And then all of a sudden the elephant disappears, you know, or it becomes a lot smaller because, you know, you can have a genuine conversation. Did, did, is that the way it sort of panned out when you had to have that conversation the other way around as the coach? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Again, tip of the hat, Nick Kennedy was director of rugby and he, he, we made the decision early in pre-season of the first year that we all took over was that he would have, he would announce the team if he needed to make phone calls, if he needed to make text messages, for whatever reason, but it was always going to be face-to-face as and when he could, um, it would be him. And I think that was just, a, you know, so there's one communication line, mm. um, but very much that all the other coaches, especially being a bats coach at the time, attack coach or whatever coach I was at the time, uh, the year before I was, I was kick, uh, kick strategy coach, that we would be open door policy, you know, and very available and hopefully your personality comes across that you can have they can come to you so quite often uh, they did actually come to me but 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 so but the majority of time I think Nick Kennedy um, was the guy who had that and the type of person he is he you can absolutely be assured that he would have done it with in the best tone in the best way with the best morals and for the right reasons but yeah I no, I, I don't. I'd be interested to see if any coach likes it. I, I hated it. You know? Yeah, I but, think. I, but I, yeah. So I was just saying. I think a lot of coaches avoid it because it's. No, yeah, but I just knew how important it was, and I don't know if. I don't know if I had uh, because it was such a petty moment dropping from me. The fact is, look, 
Smithy, or no, a, a player, player A. I've, we've gone through the reasons, and then I, I, I can I, I like the fact you don't agree because you think you're a better player than him, and I, I, that's a great mindset to have. I, I commend you for that. But we feel as a management group that this guy should be playing. Um, and and I felt like I had this, and this was my line if I needed it. And I'm talking about only a handful of times. But I, I go, we are only picking this team because for this Saturday, we feel it's the best team to win the game. Okay, and I found, and I, I think maybe it helped me be the previous a former player because I said I know how you feel. I, I I got dropped. You know, Mike Cat again. I've mentioned him a few times. He reckons he got dropped from the England team. He counted. 17 times so 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 he played for five games right sorry catty you're not good enough or you're not you're dropped that's once he reckons 17 times you know that is a guy that went to four world cups so i and i could i could use that story and i think sometimes stories help i say yeah he yeah. went to four world cups he got dropped plenty of times i've been dropped there's not a player in the world that hasn't been dropped johnny wilkinson got dropped for danny cipriani but and as long as they can give them reasons and i suppose sometimes i thought if if they can if they can if they can then go well i don't agree with your reasons but also and i always thought this that if the person could not see it but not see it from your perspective because you don't expect that but they couldn't have a decent conversation you know the conversation where you can agree to disagree then that often tells you about the personality of that person right and then then that becomes a different problem. And then if that happened a few times, then you go, is this person the right? Is he putting the team first? And yeah, essentially yeah. he probably isn't because he's been a distraction. So um, although we've probably spoken about it a lot there, it certainly wasn't a, uh, a problem and uh, it wasn't significant in terms of being a, a, a road, a road hump in terms of, or sorry, a road bump in terms of being a problem within the coaching setup when I was a coach for a couple of years in the first team. It's interesting because I think we're, we're seeing at the moment in lockdown, there's a lot of webinars, there's a lot of information, a lot of CPD going out, out to coaches. And I think, you know, it's, it's having tools to be able to have conversations like that. If you've never, if you know, if you've been playing your whole career, you know, you, you sort of left school, went straight into playing, where would you have ever come across other than being on the receiving end, you know, and a lot of people will just be on the receiving end and not like that. But where would you have the tools to be able to sit down with someone and have that conversation? And I think that that is quite a big area of CPD for, for coaching now. And I think talking, this is a much broader thing, is that someone said this and it really resonates to me. I love talking more than you, I'm telling you. I can guarantee that. <laughs> and I noticed when I talked to my wife, she shuts down thinks about something comes back and tells me and the whole time I'm just yabbering on at her and it's just a different way that we think so I think by talking and when I'm talking that's me throwing it out there looking at her reaction and engaging if I'm what I'm saying is right or wrong and then working something out as we speak and I think that's that's the value in those conversations that you have and with with players and coaches and in a time-pressed environment or some coaches want to avoid conflict want to not be seen you know, they want to seem to be the top man. It's yeah, quite an yeah. Interesting dynamic. Yeah, you're right. I mean, one one. Uh, so the experience that I can remember a lot, um, because one, I had him for a coach for about five years, Brian Smith, and two, perhaps because I was dropped a couple of times, but also because it was it was talked about within the the player group. 
So he would say the teams get announced on the uh, Wednesday or Thursday, and he would phone. He'd phone around. So credit, you know, that not a coach to try and 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 dive out of it. And again, it's probably what's the best way of doing it because I know there's some and I can't remember now, but there is a, a world class coach at the moment that thinks people make too much of it. So he he doesn't do the whole phoning around. He doesn't speak to them beforehand. He announces the team. It's a surprise to everyone. And then he says, but please come and speak to me if you, you, you want to. And because apparently he's a very uh, approachable guy, that actually really works. So there's a, just a different take on it. But Brian Smith used to ring, and th- 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 this is renowned. He's like, Smithy here? And you go, hi, Smithy. And then you go, and then awkward silences honestly so then you again and everyone spoke about especially when maybe we started going on coaching courses or or other sort of further education was this a was this a a a a ploy that was sort of done on purpose because you ended up filling the gaps so you go well i would because yeah i'll be so how how are you how oh all right we'll be up to today oh yeah well you know weather's nice isn't it and then you go put uh uh uh, what's it sorry uh Oh, horses with courses, that type of thing. That would be the tech classic saying that we're going with somebody else. Um, Took out a couple of cliches. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, <laughs> yeah, and I, exactly. And I used to come out with a cliche. And I used to come out with, mate, I'm absolutely gutted. Like, honestly, I'm really gutted. Um, yeah, obviously. Uh, but you can, and I used to say, I used to say, but I, you know, I'll put the team forward and, you know, I'll train I'll train as, as as good as I can come Thursday, you know, and you can you can bet your bottom dollar on that. And he was like, oh, but Hodgie, oh, appreciate that. Cheers, pal. So I've, I actually got off the phone going, I've made him feel better. <laughs> this is not but, the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and that was just one experience that I had of, of, of sort of being on receiving end. So did that sort of tailor, as I say, I didn't have to do it too much because there was somebody who did it for me. Um, but again, I had, didn't stop me having a lot of those difficult conversations. But yeah, interesting. Were you um, were you still playing when you started coaching? Was it was it Dawkins you started coaching at first? Yeah, again, there's a common theme here. The worrying thing about being when I was a playing career was what's what am I going to do next? Yeah. What am I gonna do next? And I, a natural theme was um, coaching, and I think also so many people have said to me, "You should be a coach. You should be a coach." Here you go. I remember this level two. I was about 23, 24, and I hope they don't mind me saying. Uh, there's two guys on that course. They did it. Luckily, they did it at Sunbury. Um, it was over, mate. It was over like four days, which was separated across like two months. Um, I think it was our day off, which was like a Wednesday. We had to come in for a whole day on a Wednesday. Well, the group started at twelve. And I think by the end of it, it, it got to like six because <laughs> boys couldn't commit to coming in on their day off. Now that sounds farcical, but at the same time. Sometimes in a week of professional training, you just savior that day off. The last thing you want to be doing. But the fact is that 12 went down to six. One of them was Paul Gustard. I don't think he lasted that four days. Um, and like, again, I, I'd say this to his face, like Guzzi, a friend of mine, but he wasn't good. Like he was laughing. He felt awkward. He was joking, you know. Um, and I remember that. And um he, he turned around and goes, oh, you're a natural at this, Paul. And and he he he, he thought he wasn't. Um, or how, how how the guy's developed and been an incredible coach he is now. 
the other person was again Katty, and this is classic. He decided to do like a kicking session, and he goes right. You get the ball. I think we spoke about this. We get the ball. You do this, this, this. Kick it. There we go. Seventy meters. <laughs> and I, I think the, the the educator guy or the guy taking the course was like, yeah, but can you break it down? And he's like, well, you just kick it like that, and he goes seventy meters. And 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 it was him struggling to explain, you know, because yeah. he was naturally talented, but he just couldn't break it down. So there was there was there was that group who were learning how to coach, but so but I was young, I, honestly, I was about 23, 24, and then I was thinking right, um, and I mentioned this the other day that I, I quite quickly and also wanted to see if I could make any more money, so I reached out to some schools. Do would you like to be to do some like master classes, private clinics? Yeah, brilliant. So I started doing them at some some schools, um, and I started my own camps as well. Uh, I think I ran about five camps in total, but they were good. Um, and then my first coaching gig, uh, about 25, 26, I helped out over at Dawkin, did that for three or four years, helped out at Southern Epsom, helped out at Surrey. Um, but yeah, that was my coaching that I did from a, y- a young age. And yeah, I remember, I re- yeah, sorry, you gone, sorry. How did, how did that affect your playing, if at all? Because, you know, sort of going back to what we were saying before, I know there's been certain things. I used to do a little bit of Olympic weightlifting. And when I started to really get into the technicalities of it, they're like, they take you apart sometimes and give you biomechanics lessons. And I, I would come out of that and my mind would be blown and trying to lift weights. And like the guy I was, who was sort of coaching me at the time, he'd just be cracking up laughing. He'd, he'd lifted at the Commonwealth Games and various different things. He's like, mate, hold your breath and just try and throw it through the ceiling and I was like oh yeah yeah and, then, and I just just don't think about all the things that they've been filling your head with just hold your breath and try and throw it over your head bang and then it works but how was your experience of playing at that time did it have any impact on the way you were looking at the game or the way you experienced the game at all yeah I, I certainly felt that I was thinking about the game a lot more um See, as a scrum half, uh, a pivotal position in terms of decision making and uh, sort of game management, you, you feel like you do a lot. And um, no disrespect, but you could go down to like these junior clubs and you, you, you could feel like you had a fountain of knowledge to share to them. And, you know, you could do some little practices, you could do some little things. Um I, I soon worked out what I felt I enjoyed as a player, so what type of session I enjoyed as a player, because then I was then delivering sessions that I wished that yeah. I could be have at the. So that was a Tuesday night, and I wished on the Wednesday oh, I wish that the coach would do this type of session for me. Um, but also there was a bit of reflection when I became coach that I perhaps didn't ask enough of. Uh, I didn't ask enough from the current coaches. So, like, I reckon I should have asked so much more of the likes of Toby Booth. Um, he knew that I was a keen coach as well, um, at, or a keen sort of aspiring coach. But what I should have done then, so I would have been like 26, maybe 27, I should have really sat down with him. And I'll give you a good example, and I don't mind sharing this at all. Uh, I don't. Some people might hit, listen to this and think, well, how could... So I, it took me, and there's other things that I felt that I grasped real, but after, after when I started coaching, it took me a while to work out why, why and I've done it my whole career, why do we have shortened line outs when we were exiting? So ne- near our try line, so we always used to have two mans, four mans, pretty much, and as we moved out, we would have some five mans. 
but closer to the opposition try line. So further up the pitch, we used to have like six plus one, seven man lineouts, etc. So because that gives you the best idea to drive. But I never, I never thought about because I don't think I needed to. But I wished, and again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. It wasn't because I was being naive to it. It's just that I did, I, I didn't know to ask questions of, of, of this. And it was an absolute missed opportunity because I could have turned around to Toby Booth and said, look, let's talk about why we have shortened lineouts. Um, and of course, everyone knows now that you have shortened lineouts because that that means that there's, well, it's easier to win the ball um, and it allows more people on their feet to, to chase to chase the kick. You have a better kick chasing team. But I remember sort of after my playing career, really then thinking about it, asking something, and I was like, yeah, but what that could have done is that could have stimulated some conversations earlier in my playing career. So, you know, I know that, so that although it ha- what, what, what was significant in terms of being a player, did I learn from coaching um, that yeah, it was, it was type of session that I'd like to run and there were certain things that I would like to be different. What would you? What what were those types of things you wanted to to have as a player? What was the sort of thing that you know you'd been in coach professional coaching environment, or professional training environment for a long time by then? What what were the sorts of things you wanted to do as a player? Yeah, I I didn't think there was a need to smash each other all the time, um, and that's not to say that we did, but I even think there was too much of it. Like Tuesdays were renowned for just like contact, 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 um, but I I honestly felt. And I know you can't do one rule for one person, but I honestly felt that I didn't need to. At a certain point, I felt that I need to save up my wear and tear, the impacts for Saturday. And if I start missing one or two tackles or three or four tackles, then, of course, let's go back to it. Now, of course, somebody can say, was well, no, the fact that you weren't missing tackles and you tackled pretty well the weekend was because of that contact you did in the week. But I, I debunked that myth later on because when there, when there was a coaching opportunity or when I was under a coach that we didn't do much contact, I still was able to sort of deliver. So one thing, so, and the last thing I was going to, so I promise you, like these amateur clubs on a Tuesday and Thursday night, perhaps maybe not on a Thursday, but on a Tuesday, they would do shitloads of contact. Now, I'm going to do a full circle here because sometimes players enjoy doing a bit of bump. So um, maybe I went too far, but I was... But there is a certain amount that was too much. So I'm just trying to get that level whereby I say, look, let's just play lots of games. Yeah. Because I just knew that that's what they love. So competitive games, yeah. uh, games which which weren't always brand new because sometimes it takes them a while to, they just want to play the game. But then tweaks for a coaching objective, a purpose, but also to make it uh, engagement and for uh, to, to vary. So those type of things that um, are shorter. Look, they get there at 7.30. We don't have to train till 9. Yeah. You know, try it maybe 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. Like it's, even now, I coach at Sun Nepsum. You know, I, I, I really want to get them off that pitch at half eight. If we start at 7.30, I want to get them off that pitch at half eight. And there was a lot of surprise guys. And then I have, then sometimes, I remember one session that was only 45 minutes. So by quarter past eight, we were done. Two things that happened then. One player turned around and goes, mate, I'm not being funny. I, 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 I live an hour and a half away. Like, I want to maximise this time. I'm like, oh, so you want to train more? So that was a bit of a surprise to me. Always learning, right, Simon? Yeah, yeah. But um, what that also did was that quarter past eight finish was it meant a lot of people stayed out afterwards to do their own extras. Um, and then going back full circle is what else did I learn about sessions is give 
people an opportunity to practice the things that you are dropping them for, right? So my point being is um, you're saying that my footwork fend isn't good enough. Well, when do I ever get to train? So a coach could turn around and say, well, practice on your own. Yeah, but I need a good practice to have four or five players to do that with. You know, they afterwards, after training, they're practicing that, they're practicing that. If I could do this, oh, okay. So as a coach, I was quite conscious of trying to keep that in mind. So but literally people's uh, player development plan how could I incorporate certain people's, you know, and often reference that as well. It's always nice to remind people, oh, hey, this is this is a great one for you. This is a great one for you three. Do you know what I mean? So that's interesting because uh, there was a there was a junior club I was coaching at as an SNC coach, and uh, we had a fullback who was absolutely electric, really great. But every time he inserted into the line in attack, he dropped the ball, and uh, like the coach was like, oh, mate, he just can't catch. And I was like, well, yeah, but what are we doing about that? So. It was just, I was just standing there watching trainer. wasn't It wasn't a coaching conversation. It was like yeah. he was almost saying it to himself. I was like, and I was standing there thinking, like, how many times in the week does he get a chance at full speed to catch and pass? Because we're playing all these small sided games. Yeah. So for for the next training session, I was like, right, we're going to do a bit of speed. I want you to in fours build up to maximum speed from the try line to the twenty two, and then I want you to start putting passes across without losing speed onto the ball so you need to be attacking the ball at speed and maintaining your running speed off it's a speed drill mm. and like in that in that session like he must have had i think we probably did it for 10 minutes he must have had about 15 20 goes roughly to, to catch and pass the ball and the really funny thing was a lot of the passes were absolutely horrendous because they couldn't run at full speed and chuck a pass so all of a sudden the quality of delivery got a little bit better he got a lot few more opportunities to catch and pass and hey presto like all of a sudden he's catching because it gave him the confidence in training in the games then and we we called it a, i just called it a speed drill i didn't even bother telling the coach yeah. what doing or yeah. why and it's just interesting you say that and i i think that's a really good opportunity to get identify problems and then what what, what are you going to do about it as a coach because often coaches say oh, he can't do this he can't do it. what are you doing as the coach yeah so, to improve that so is that yeah. something you do still now yeah yeah 100 i mean i try and sort of um, empower the player um and i think like for instance one one one, one thing that I, I, I well in my philosophy is that you know you've got to have as a ball player ball carrier as an attacking attacking player in the game of rugby for instance you got to try and have something which adds value to the team, right? So that could be your strong route one, it could be footwork, it could be offloading, it could be your pass, it could be your speed. So therefore, how can we then um, improve those things? Because you're doing enough stuff in units or team sessions which you hope is improving everyone's pass or everyone's movement, footwork, that type of thing. But therefore, um, what can you really hold your hat on to? You know, where, whereby you're, you're going to help the team get over the gain line through holes uh, towards the opposition try line. So, that, you know, that, those, those are good early conversations to have. Um, and usually, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a guy who's an unbelievable goal kicker. But then um, he, that I've worked with in the past, not now. And he, he, we had a tough conversation because he didn't know what else he could offer. You know, he, you know, he wasn't fast. He decent footwork. No, 
Um, his passing wasn't great. Now, this I'm talking about the amateur game here. So this is an amateur player. But we said, well, there there are still things you can do. You can lines of running. You know, we can let's look at your lines of running. An out to win line could be good. And there's certain things that we can even come up with for you. You know, you wanted to fill yeah. this guy's balloon up of of, yeah, of yeah. sort of positive energy. And you know, he's a bit down on himself um, because everybody else had a clear one. He thought, but still, it was just really important to try and help him. It's interesting. I've I've been listening to um, a few. Uh, very very top level uh, sportsmen and women talking about their game and I was I've been mowing my paddock today for five hours so I've been listening to about 20 podcasts quite funny ah, but, <laughs> but um, there's a real theme that just came out there and it was self-reflection and you know uh, there was um, Van Persie Rio Ferdinand Van Persie actually wrote a letter to himself really I saw a snippet actually yeah yeah yeah, of, so, of, yeah. So he wrote a letter to himself and listing out what he said. So how often as a player do do they sit down and think, well, actually, what am I good at? And so when you look at a lot of the top players, you know, you talk about common common denominators, common habits, common things they did. Across the ones I was listening to today, a lot of them would sit down and assess themselves and, uh, you know, honestly assess themselves and get some feedback from other people. And like the the interviewers were saying to him, like, did someone sit you down to do that? Were you working with a psychologist? No, 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 no. I just did that because I wanted to know how to improve my game. And they didn't say it, but you could tell it was, again, it's that thing. It's that fear of failure. That's, it's that thing that's driving them on to be a better player. That was always what was in the background of that. So, And again, that is a psychological characteristic, characteristic of developing excellence is self fair self-evaluation. So, again, go back to the, the young kids, evaluate uh, – we can give them these tools to be able to develop their career, which will help them if they're a pro, but equally if they're playing, you know, level six or seven, or if they're at work, you know, sit down, what am I good at? What am I not good at? You know, how can I super strength myself and how can I bring up my weak areas? It's quite a, it's quite an, it, it's a very broad set of tools that can work in many different areas. So yeah. then I'm, I'm interested now. So you, you, you go through into to the academy and go through to Irish and uh, work with the first team, etc. And yeah. so, a lot of the conversations we've had have been around areas of skill acquisition and things like that. What what sort of things like looking back now uh, on that time? What sort of things sort of came into your coaching around you know around about that time when you're sort of working with the first team? Because yeah. You haven't got a lot of time, have you, at the pro game, you know, working Saturday to Saturday to, to, to get things into people. And a lot of the principles of coaching we talk about now are not things that are very short term. They're very long term things that take a while to sort of kick in. So how, how is that sort of trying to assess that material and then try and bring it into what you were doing? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's many things. So the one thing that I always. Um, so one thing I struggled with as a player was that. I mentioned about my passing and I, I honestly felt that my passing I practiced so and I, I honestly felt I couldn't practice much more yet I couldn't understand why I couldn't get the same distance as power as 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 others now when I think of certain players so like in the early of my career like the likes of Sean Perry and um, Andy Gummersall um, just big guys they're big guys probably another 15 15 20 kgs heavier than me and, you know, that, that analogy of you can't fire a cannonball out of a canoe. So that came to mind. So I was like, well, yeah. and actually what 
I think is that maybe they weren't as quick as getting the ball out of the breakdown and releasing, but boy, they made up the power in the air, you know, uh, whilst the ball was in the air, the flight of it. Um, so I mentioned before that my game changed um, from when I was like 18, 19. And I mentioned that game up at Bristol that I, I felt was the catalyst of my career was making loads of breaks. Under that Brian Smith era, um, one of my things was that if I could get the ball to Solosi, Chadidaka, Bao, Topsiojo, Dylan Armitage, Mapasua, we scored the bundles of tries. So my, my thing was getting rid of the ball um, very quickly. So my fitness and just getting away. My, my mantra, touching away, touching away, touching away, bang, bang, bang. So a lot of the things I'll do from Richard Hill being a scrum half coach, touching away, touching away. But when it was needed, like... I remember, like, I, my, I had a fear, not a lot of fear, but I didn't really like the ball coming off the front line out because, geez, that's a long pass. And it was really noticeable if you're not getting that ball into the first receiver's hands. But I looked at other scrum halves and I knew that I was practicing more on them, but they were getting the ball there. So I didn't, and my bench press, was it strength? Don't know. But actually, so I mean, it'd be interesting to, because. Was it something earlier in, in my development that I wasn't doing? But is it physiological breakups? Okay, a good friend of mine, Richard Wigglesworth, um, he he works his game hard. But I, I don't know if he'll be mind me saying, but it always seemed like he had long arms, right? And that sort of like elastic sling motion just looked like he got a lovely pass away. Um, I think Danny Kerr is quite similar to me. Again, I don't think he proclaimed to have a, the, the best pass ever. But boy, I mean, it's good enough. But again, he was quite rippy, you know. Um, when we look around the leagues, I mean, Fafta Clerk at the moment, he just rips the ball. Um, again, but he's just a bundle of muscle, isn't he? Aaron Smith, it's all wrists and forearms. A guy that looks like he's just drilled it, drilled it, drilled it. So one of my earliest com- uh, sort of thoughts about being a coach, coming to the academy, is what I was really interested in, working day in, day out with coaches. How much will I be able to change these? if they can't do something. And that was something that was very prominent early on of a consideration. I've got a couple of stories that follow on from that of some perhaps two ends of the spectrum, one that literally changed within a few months and one that never did. So, but again, I'd be interested, what's your thoughts on somebody that blood, sweat and tears, day in, day night, literally couldn't pass anymore? Why do you feel, what could be some of the reasons? I know this is a bit of tangent here. Yeah, well, I mean, definitely your, so the technical term would be morphology is like your arm length ratios of hip to, so uh, arm to leg length. If, there could be a huge amount of uh, variation there. Fast twitch fibres, you know, the amount of explosive muscle that you've got to be able to devote to a to a pass. And then there, there would be probably other, other bits and pieces you do around that in terms of sort of power training. You know, if you want to get the speed of the pass, then you need to be doing things very quickly with maximum rest. So that there'll be quite a few things. Now, obviously, I, I haven't really got a clue, but it'd be interesting then to look at arm lengths. Um, mm. ratio. There might be the certain things that have leg to arm ratios. Um, yeah. The types of- I think, yeah, I think there was certainly, um, again, it sounds obvious, but certainly maybe from the very beginning of the way I was holding the ball simply the way you you literally who knows if certain millimeters uh, and certain finger placement can make a difference you know and you'd say of course they would Um, but yeah it was always a conundrum that I thought well what could I have done differently because who knows I mean 
you always think nine caps for England, I should be happy. But you know, why couldn't I've kicked on to get yeah. fifty? And there's other parts of my game, but um, you know, and I'm grateful for the caps I did get. But you always think that. So anyway, when I went into my coaching careers, and and again, the most fulfilling part was seeing how quickly you can improve a lot of these guys. Um, but there was an, uh, there was a goal kicker there that, geez. You know, love or money, and you know, I'd I'd make sure that you know, because I wasn't a goal kicker myself, I had a few principles. I felt I had a very good understanding, but I made sure he was an England under 20s player, so I made sure that he had access to a recognised kicking coach as well. But it, it would stump this kicking coach as well. You know, what why we weren't seeing the improvements, and I felt obviously frustrating, but fascinating as well. And then you had the likes of somebody called Joe. Joe Thokasinha, yeah. You know, a guy whereby I promise you, at like 15, to the age of 15, maybe 16, like, he won't mind me saying, and again, um, maybe not in front of him, but, (laughs) (laughs) but he, because he would admit it, I mean, and again, we're lucky because it's so recent, that his hands, in terms of catching, was so poor, was so poor. And yet, within a year, like, the handling... Again, the handling, the offloading, the way his high ball catching, you know, the way it improved in such a short amount of time. Now, again, we can talk about genetics. You can talk about culturally, Fijian. You know, we know these guys are, the guys are sort of, they they grow up with a ball in their hands. But he come over, but why was his hands so poor at 15, 16, you know? And how did he know or how did he find a way of of accelerating so quickly i mean my uh my sort of my topic for my level four uh project was oh my gosh this is from memory it was developing basically how to accelerate development basically that was a long short bit and it included a training session so basically i created an arrow of what would go into like a a a, a, a coaching session that i believed would would have a good chance of accelerating development um but yeah and i'm not taking one bit of credit for joe um you know you'd like to think that you played some part of his skill development but there's something naturally within him that was able him to grasp like going from somebody who couldn't catch within a year later he's he's putting off some of the most unbelievable offloads and they're called size of hands and things like that I remember, I remember coming to see you at Irish and watching, watching him training. And I think, I think it was you. I was talking. Well, maybe it wasn't you, but we we're talking about where you were putting him in training to enforce him to be getting more, to touches. be receiving more. Yeah, to get more touches. And uh, I think, I think it's probably a bit, um, a bit modest of you to say that because I think there were a lot of conversations going around about what you were doing to support him to do that. And I thought it was quite. The one thing I sort of felt going across there was the the culture was really really strong. It was really amazing to go over there, you know, and all the players. Every, there was the conversations that that were happening there, and so that, that's another thing I wanted to just sort of ask you about. I, I'm sort of conscious we're going on a bit, but there's a couple, just a couple more things I wanted to ask you. So one of the things I wanted to ask was about um, when Brendan Venter came in and the, the coaching that was going on there because. There were a couple of things going on. One of the things that uh, was quite interesting to me was, it was a big theatre. Everyone was out. Everyone was working as coaches, you know, getting the balls back in, etc. But it was timed and it was strict. And that was it. And once that clock ticked over, that was the end of the session. And the rest periods were on a stopwatch. 
So how was that as a coach? Because that must have been very different for you. Yeah. Um, I think I knew the importance of, and again, trusting your performance team like Andre and co so much. I think, I know they struggled at times, but I think on the whole, they agreed more than they didn't agree. Um, uh, but yeah, we knew the importance of sort of load in terms of covering meters and times. And to be honest, it wasn't, you know, before that, of our absolute serious coaching, when I refer to serious coaching, I mean as a full-time job. So the two years working in the academy, on a Monday night, we had time restrictions. You know, we did have time restrictions because these kids doing A-levels, they've come travel an hour and a half to get to you. You know, we've got them, let's just do an hour. So that that wasn't so much the problem. Um, I think, again, some context of Brendan Venter coming in. So um, so very quickly, we... we what, so. First year, so I refer to me, Nick Kennedy, and Declan Danaha. Okay, so the other two, stalwarts of London Irish, came back, and we we came back to coach in the academy with uh, Billy Clark and Giselle Mather, two other coaches there. Right, that was year one. Year two, um, we, our other 18s went on to win the Premiership, and uh, we won the Premiership with with some great players, um, but at the same time, the first team got relegated, and that was with all these Southern Hemisphere coaches that had been recruited, uh, a lot of them got moved on. Um, uh, and for the first time ever in 120-year history, London Irish, they got relegated. So all these coaches were sacked. And I think it was a bit of um, I think they tried to refer it to a bit like the class of 92. It was like uh, Dodgy, myself, uh, Kendo and Deck. You know, you can do this, and Clark Laidlaw. Okay, you can do this. You, 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 anything you touch turns to gold. Fine. Um, but they knew that we were pretty inexperienced. They knew that much, and it's not like we wanted the the opportunity either. Like we knew that we were coming off the end of our second year <laughs> as full time coaches. We didn't want this, but. I think the board, I think the, uh, Bob Casey, who's currently CEO, he, they, I don't think they had anywhere where else to turn, you know, and probably we, we were quite cheap as well. Um, but they knew that we needed somebody, and there's no better man, if you think about it, of a guy that used to be at London Irish, yeah. who who gave a lot to the club probably, what was that, I think, 10 years before, and also had proven success. So any Saracens person... I was, they, they would be the first to admit that they owe a lot of their success, despite of everything that's gone on the last six to a year to, to Brendan Venter. It was a perfect fit. So he came in as our technical director, and there he was. He'd come in, walks in, like he was there for a bit of a stint in pre season, but every month he'd live in South Africa. He was a doctor over in South Africa. He would come over to, um, he would come over to London Irish once a month for three or four days, like a whirlwind. More energy than you? Ah, uh, more energy than oh you. Oh man, yeah, man. He made me look like a sloth. Um, I mean, to be fair, like he used to comment saying, "Hodgie, I love your energy. I love your presentations. I love your your sessions." But my gosh, there's this guy. I'll describe him in a minute. But there he was, and he would come in, and um, two things. He's coming off probably other than Leicester and Bath, but in the modern era, as responsible for the most successful premiership rugby team, Saracens, won. The amount of 
30 years coaching experience. I mean, a doctor as well. There's always that kudos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also the way he talks and sells things and the way he debates, argues and demands. So those two things, his experience, his credentials, and the second thing is the way he communicates. You believe every word he says and actually don't even have an option because he is the top of the tree. He's our technical director. You do what he says. So he brings over this, for, this, this formula of this is the way the sessions are going to work. It's going to be three skill blocks each of seven minutes, one for the attack, one for the defense, one for the breakdown. Then you'll go on to uh, a session which is four, sorry, four lots of five minute chuckers, but essentially, yeah, um, a certain amount of reps where, again, for people that are interested, it, it, very quickly, it would be that every chucker is mapped out. So these are the 15 players, the other 15 are on the bench, but there's a 15 versus 15 and 15 on the bench. And then it all happens. People swap in, swap out, swap out. And then once it's done, it's done, you're done. So, you know, what I was like, this is brilliant. I've never done a sessions like this before. Um, I think Eddie Jones was doing, so there was this high intense where all these people run on move out. So is this the the way to coach now? Is it proven? Is this proven to be successful? And um, sessions were short and sharp. Everyone liked, I think, at the time, especially when you're winning every week in the championship, Everyone liked the fact that they knew what was going, and everyone loves a bit of fifteen and fifteen. You know, that's 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 it's the, it's the game, isn't it? So, no, uh, at that point, really happy with it. You had to design your seven minutes for that 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 block at the beginning as best you can. You had, you know, this is where you can get your personality and license across the rest of the session. So, you talk about quality. You could put all your quality really into that seven minutes each day, and then plus you have the units in the morning, but. And then make sure you know what scenarios you want for those chuckers. So uh, do you want it to start with a restart? Do you want it to start with a scrum, a line out? How long is it going on for? So some would be 30 seconds, some would be 60 seconds, some would be 90 seconds, and the whistle would go. Um, but that was pretty much the only thinking. And, you know, things were rosy in that championship. So Brendan would come in, give a bit of his experience, his his crazy personality and then he would he'd waltz off back to SA <laughs> doing doing two jobs earning lots of cash no doubt yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like feel free I mean because there's so much you can say about the man and I'll probably you know so all I can say is that you know sell ice to an Eskimo like literally yeah. you're in a meet and I think what I'll say is sometimes and again you hear about some very successful coaches Pep Alex Ferguson Jose Mourinho, I think, so we obviously put a lot of time and effort into the tactics and the strategies to win a game, but really, that same game, you can perform pretty well and you could probably win the game a few different ways. Let's assume that, okay, hypothetically speaking, but in actual fact, it's the way that the group's galvanised, it's everyone aligned to a game plan, okay, not necessarily the absolute best one, but it's still an eight and a half out of ten game plan. It's not a nine and a half so we could go into the game with a nine and a half out of ten game plan, but for whatever reason we've got an eight and a half out of ten game plan. But because everybody is so enthused by it, so sold on it, that that's good enough for the performance to win the game, which is all that matters in the mm. performance industry, uh, in the environment, uh, in the Premiership. So that's what he was amazing at. He was amazing at sitting at the front of that and presenting 
and calling out people's names. I mean, he did that. So he talked about presenting. He would quite often go, uh, Danny, 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 talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. Tell me about this. Tell me about this. Why do you think we should do that? Yeah. And why he's he calls out someone else over there and he calls out someone else there. He's got a room, captulated. All the support staff at the back are just, and that's experience and that's his enthusiasm. And he's, he's not be funny. His um. Afrikaans voice as well, you know that 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 that, that, that he had a good voice. He had a good voice. Commanding, yeah, yeah, hundred percent, yeah, Simon. Um, so I mean, again, we'll go into maybe the reflection and the flaws later on. But there was so much that good that came from Brendan, um, and we won the championship. Okay, and we won the championship. So what was it? Yeah, obviously we had the mate. You go. Know, so we'll, we'll call it as it is because I'll use the same reasons, not excuses, for the following year. But we had the biggest budget. We had the best players in the league, the best facilities, um, probably the, the biggest size squad. So we won that championship pretty easy, okay? And that was with the the, the, the support, the coaching team with Brendan Venter at the top. Um, and yeah, what other stories? So um, you know, like we could debate a few things. We could go around the table, and you could put your ideas forward, and then we'll still go with his idea. That happened quite a lot. Um, <laughs> Paul, I've got this great idea as an attack move, and I'll be looking at it going, oh no, I know the players won't like it, and the players didn't like it, um, but we'd have to do it anyway. You know, that happened a couple of times. Um, I noticed, again, it'd be interesting his take on this. Quick story. So, that championship year, uh, Clark Laidlaw, New Zealand Simmons coach, still is. Uh, I'm a fantastic coach. Um, uh, obviously, Scottish, but uh, did a lot of his coaching education over in New Zealand. Uh, Hurricanes, attack coach, brilliant guy. Um, we were fortunate enough to work with him for two years. Um, but at the end of the championship year, he left. But in that January of that year, he had to go over to, I think, pretty much uh, sort of uh, audition uh, to sort of apply for the New Zealand Seminars job. So he was gone for January, which, 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 which was funny because one, the attack got handed over to me, but all of a sudden, Brendan Venter turned up for like three weeks, <laughs> and I think it was like literally like, uh, like a dog of the bone. He was like, I get to run the attack, so he phoned me up on a Sunday night and go, right, me and you challenge tomorrow. I was like, oh my gosh, what is it? He goes, you've got to come up with four plays. I've got to come up with four plays, and we're going to run them against each other and see. Um, who who's better? I was like, oh, okay, yes, but these are the rules. You got to do it off five plus one line out, etc., etc. Fine. And I remember, like five minutes before, about to go outside to have this little contest. He would change the line out. Oh, oh by the way, we're not having the eight at plus one. We've got the six at plus. One. Oh, cheers, Brendan. <laughs> so go go out. And I knew I always had this one up my. Uh, I got it from uh, Checker. We're all magpies, aren't we? I got it from Checker for Australia. Um, against England and essentially it was a free phase play and without going into too much detail it's off a line out you hit up once you go around the corner but the scrum half moves a few about five meters in the same direction and then the 10 comes back and because the guard has underhooked the wrong way there's always a hole there always a hole plus you use a player on the side of the ruck to block subtly now this play so, okay, so I saw it a couple of years before. I had not seen it ever since, and I had it in the locker. And I was like, brilliant. Anyway, mate, it scored every time. So, anyway, we used it. So, it, it came into our attack book, and Clark came back and goes, fair play, I like that one, fine. And we were eating away 
and last 76th minute, and I remember it like it was yesterday, we ran this play, uh, Jimmy Marshall, our 10, inside ball to Topsy, Topsy through under post and scored. Well, BV was good enough not to claim all of it, but he claimed, <laughs> ha- he claimed half of it. 100% that play is mine. Those two plays today. And I still use it today. And it's interesting, I see Sale use it a fair bit. I see somebody use it against Argentina. But it's everyone's mad pies, right? Everyone rips off plays. But anyway, yeah, that's just classic BV. Yeah, and you know, um, he'll come out with some things that just, yeah, again, just some crazy things. But a good guy, a real good guy. Wanted the best for the team, um, but mad, mad, mad as a yeah, box hat mate, mad. I, I just thought it was interesting to sort of see the buzz around the club and the way that just the way that the training was structured, that which was something very different at the time, and it was sort of giving you quite limited access I mean that's interesting you talk about the academy you've got limited time with the players like you know you'd be thinking if there was literally one minute between those chuckers which I mean what I saw very limited rest times and there was a lot of that had to happen the players had to take on a bit of water address what had gone wrong sort it out and the coach had limited sort of impact in that and and that was it because very often in coaching, you see it goes on for hours and hours and hours, and I quite liked it. It was really sort of short and sharp. So it was just it was just really interesting to see that that happen, and then it's brilliant to get that context behind it. It's really fascinating to see that as a character, and it's sometimes quite interesting to see people lay out their methods, and then people, oh yeah, exactly what you say, magpie, are like oh take that thirty minutes, thirty minutes, thirty minutes, and five minute chat. But unless you're Brendan Venter, exactly what you're saying, you know with that that game plan it could be eight and a half out of ten but if you've got that force of personality behind it and you galvanize everyone and command them on the way you can beat someone who's like a nine and a half out of ten just just on that basis but um, i was just interested so you, you sort of touched on this earlier earlier on as well about principles we we talk about this quite a bit don't we you know so you've got methods of many principles a few methods often change and principles never do so what yeah. what sort of principles do you so I, I i wouldn't you don't necessarily need to take it down to, to rugby specifically because now you're sort of as a director. Mm. What sort of principles are you, what sort of things have you taken from all this time now that you, sort of your, they're the things you really rely on? Yeah, I think, I think, um, uh, I, I, I say what, it, it depends because I think some of my favourite sessions were with these under-18s academy players and it's just because the session, that, so again, what I loved, so I mean, I remember those sessions, um, I just knew how important it was for. Um, it was absolute travesty when I found out once that um, a player in our session had, or early sessions, had touched the ball like five times during a whole hour, and that's because we'd done a lot of small sided games, or, or what I thought were, but he still was on the fringes. So therefore, one of the things I did was we were we, we were fortunate to have access to a junior analysis guy who videoed every one of our, our academy sessions, but afterwards we would ask him if he didn't mind and I used to pick one forward and one back and he used to go have to go through about how many touches they were and I think footballers I think football coaches um, again the game's been a lot more professional than rugby for a long time but you hear about them using clickers about yeah. uh, passing but again it's just a real good thing whereas I wanted um, and again I, I credit to courses and yeah maybe courses you, and, and, and again who was I speaking to? Uh, so I was listening to Eddie Jones uh, the other day about his PE teacher background. We know about Wayne Smith, Stuart Lancaster, loads of PE teachers, but they they know so much already because it's common sense of of teaching. But 
it has to be engaging. Now, for me, we know engaging means they've got to touch, we think, or we should believe that engaging means touching the ball more than four times in an hour, right? So yes. that, 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 that meant, so early on, design sessions, which means that players would touch. Okay, okay, I'd be interested to know about the evidence, but contextual interference, so basically randomised sessions. So um, um, some, some coach educators might have a heart attack listening to this, but I, I, I loved this thing that I did. It was called the, the skill under pressure. So essentially within the session, which was a lot of uh, games, we would do a thing where you had to nail a pass, okay? And it was like, actually, what you were speaking about a minute ago, where a guy was running at quite a decent pace, but whilst he was running, a defender would come towards him, he had to nail a pass. He had one opportunity. We'd jump out of the session for about 90 seconds, and they'd go back into it. Uh, and I had a good old conversation with someone who goes, you can do that in a game. You can do that in a game. You know, why can't they nail the pass under pressure in a game? And I was like, yeah, fair play. But we liked the way we did it. And... Um, so that so we'll talk about as many touches as possible. Lots of games. Games had to be competitive. So um, we used to do like whether that was through a captain. Um, secret rules where we get we tell one team a, a rule. They'd have to go back and tell their team that type of thing. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that are a lot more common now, whether that's through like the Magic Academy or or people that we hear speak a lot. Uh, these things. Um, there was one hot feedback. So actually similar to. So that's why I wasn't in total. Wasn't. Yeah. BV, BV's uh, BV being Brenda Venter's way wasn't wasn't sort of completely new that hot feedback so we'd long agreed that we don't want long cold huddles um, hot feedback is you run alongside the athlete the player giving them that and again questioning technique we know the value in that like so don't but sometimes you had to go up and say you weren't high enough in that kick chase make sure you are because that's all you had time for other times is what could you have done differently in that kick chase, et cetera, et cetera. But hot feedback, we used to love hot feedback. Um, just trying to think of other, but anyway, there's lots of things that went in. So then going back to school, um, one of the first things I saw was we used to wait till the last boy had put his boots on. So we, we go over a bridge under a, uh, a covered area. There's 60 kids, but we're still waiting for the last few kids to put on. no. Get a hundred balls out there. Get them touching that ball. So there was things that crossed over to school, touches there like that, um, and very quickly, you know, they thought that maybe a game of seven v seven or eight v eight was a small side of game. Why can't we do a four v four? So they, they, those are the things, you know, that that sort of stuck to me and those principles. So yeah, but I think um, so. My principles are about energy and positive, yes. and that's just that's just me. Like and I. I Again, I love to know, and it's not everyone, but I just I need to see that in a session, and I can't stand it if support coaches are doing that like that unless they've been given a role. Come on, everyone, bring value to the session. We're only out here for X amount of time. Bring value to the session. So lots of touches, small-sided games, hot feedback, positive energy. They're the type of things, but that they're, they're sort of my principles. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really good, and it's funny. I was listening to Dylan Hartley today, and oh, one of the right. things he was talking about was about hot feedback. Was Eddie Jones? Was what's the point in getting to the end of the session, getting into a huddle, listing everything we've done wrong, and then waiting a minimum of twenty four hours to address it? If, yeah. If you're doing your feedback at the end, it's too late. You need to get it into the session, and you need to have a go at correcting it. So that's quite. That's yeah. Quite, that's quite a good point. I, 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 I knew there were certain things that would perhaps bring another thought in. Another conundrum, right? So coaching. 
it used to drive me mad when um, after a game you go through the videotape, uh, so the footage, and go ah, pause there. That's where the space was. We should have it. We should have attacked that space. You're like, come on, run that real time. You can't see yeah. that space. And you sort of, as a player, go, I'm never going to do that as a coach. Now, this is, and actually I spoke about this in a podcast the other day, um, was the dilemma I had of that challenge in last year, whereby we're in a losing season. So we've now been promoted into the premiership. So same coaching team. Oh, we've lost Cart Laidlaw. He's gone to New Zealand Sevens. We didn't replace him. Hindsight, a mistake. But there was reasons behind why we didn't replace him. We still got Brendan Venter at the helm. And with losing season, it brings it brings problems. Of course, it does. Um, but we can we talk about those. Um, but one thing that I was having to do was, and this was what I found tough. And maybe it was my inexperience, but I had to come up with a game plan to beat um, another Premiership team. And quite often, those other Premiership teams, their defence walls were pretty good. Okay, and you have a squad. That absolutely no disrespect, which we had some fantastic players, but um, you're looking for a Billy Filippolo. You're looking for you know somebody that can get you over the game line or something like that. So, and again, I refer to this story where I watched. We I think we were playing Bath, and I, so you watch the previous teams that have played Bath. One of them was Wasp. Wasp managed six points against them in 80 minutes, right? And again, you're looking at their bat line, Christian Wade, Marcus Watson, Copperth, uh, or whoever, Joe Simpson, Scrum Half, um, those types of players. And you're like, ah, oh, um, all right. But you, you like it because it's a challenge, right? Okay, I think we've got some plays. I, like, I think we've got some things that we can do. So, but at the same time, you've got five or six games that you're looking for footage of where there's some space uh, against Bath and Bath's defence ball was pretty and what you do and, and and then you're thinking well wait a minute what has been the best meetings or the best game plans and you do you end up not not trying to manipulate of what you're seeing but you're trying to come up with a story a theme or a game plan that is built on a still there a still there now this is not quite the same because you're not saying it in after the match because but you are saying it as in this is what you've seen. Examples. Now, examples, yeah. And I think that was one of the toughest things is is trying to sell a game plan that is you, you've you've at yeah you've had to really not scrape the barrel. That's probably the wrong phrase. But you've you've really had to try and make up um, to to try and sell to a group of players because the other thing that was happening as well is you got Brendan Venter who had some ways, and I think he knew as well how tough, well, of course he knew how tough it was. And his philosophy, a different, a little bit different from mine, was if you can't break down defence, then it's probably better not to have the ball. So we yeah, were keeping yeah. the ball away a lot, right? And, you know, we had to keep the ball like that. So a lot of our game plan was about kicking the ball away. And, you know, professional rubber players, they, you know, it's the same as grassroots and playing as a youngster. You want the ball in hand. And I had to sell this a lot of time, you know. Uh, he was he was on the end of the phone. He'd be watching the game with a fine comb, and we would hear on the Monday if he was, you know, okay, you delivered the game plan that I expected or I didn't or something like that. That was tough because I think players, mate, I know I was a player. You can see through. Um, but I was trying to be true, so I'd always be true to myself, and I'd let BV that I know I was doing. I say, look, BV thinks 
that we should do this because and you know yeah another thing we could do that i've seen is this so i felt that i was able to hold um sort of uh i i was able to hold credibility not pretending but also not throwing bv under the bus yeah because yeah, yeah. bv didn't want he was like tell them tell them it's me tell them it's me you know because also he felt if they know it's him they'll do it more <laughs> yeah 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 so there's just you know there's some little conundrums that we that i was in that final year and so now you've you've gone across to the to the school and we have quite a lot of chats about that i think it's quite interesting because Working in a school, it wasn't something that I necessarily had sort of top of my list, but it's something that I absolutely love now. And I think the opportunities you've got to improve people, the opportunities to improve an eight-year-old or the proper, the opportunities to improve a 28-year-old is like, as a coach, like, what, what do you want? Something that's sort of like either 98% done yeah, or, or like 102% because they're probably yeah. over, over. Or you've got an eight-year-old who's like a, a, an open book. And then the variety of coaching, the variety of, of things that you get into. And so, I mean, that's, I think it's, it's a brilliant opportunity as a coach. And it's, it's really interesting to see all those experiences that are now coming into what you're doing over there. And I think like you listen to the, the first part of this podcast where we did the little takeaways and you're just rattling off all these things that you do. And it's interesting to go through that whole story of your coaching to say you know you want engagement and we want them to have fun and we want them to have touches and then listen back to what you said there you know with all the things you've been doing and that, that comes across comes across really well that is everything I was hoping for and more and the, the, the thing I was I was really hoping for in this conversation is that the value I see in these types of conversations is, is honesty and I tell you what they, it was really really honest totally open I've, I've written I've written pages and pages and pages of notes. It's been fantastic. So I just want to say thank you ever so much. It's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, and we'll definitely keep on having them. No, I appreciate it, Simon. And actually, this is really beneficial. We talk about that self reflection, why you do things. Um, I don't think there's any. I think a lot of people are being reflecting in in the current time we are at the moment, and you hit the nail on the head at that final bit i absolutely love my job um one because it's a great work-life balance i think the competitiveness is still in there i want it to be the best school in the area yeah i want the children to be their absolute best you're trying to always do things that other schools aren't doing you know like these big events and stuff like that it's that competitive but at the same time you get you, you can work really really hard you can see value that you're giving to a lot of children, yet you get a lot of time with your your, your family, which is, you know, and, you know, I mentioned my mum and dad, you know, I lost them the last four years and five years and, uh, you know, it's just family are so dear. So, yeah, I'm really happy to have got to where I am. Um, there's a lot of unfinished work to do at the school um, as we move into a senior school, which means I'll be on the phone to you a lot more. <laughs> what do i do with these teenagers now because (laughs) one thing you can be assured of is and again it was just it was amazing my first couple of weeks these under nines under tens not that you would um right run around that pitch do it again and like they just have so much energy which is great to work with uh, but channeling that the right way correct channeling it the right way but simon just mate um first and foremost i want to say a big thanks for you uh um uh, obviously uh, allow me to do this tonight and providing the platform but also being a, a good friend and, and, and an unbelievable aid for me uh, with all your advice etc I love the conversations they're fantastic good man alright cheers Paul thanks cheers Simon see ya